Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to another completely unnecessary podcast for Tuesday, December 6th. 2016. Oh, the weather outside is frightful, but Pat, it is almost delightful. Ian's still not feeling well, so I'll be your solo host once again for the CU Podcast. We'll be talking about the Game Awards. We'll be talking about a stadium event story on ESPN.com. What? Universal Nintendo theme parks? Uh, PewDiePie deleting his channel at 50 million. Oh, what shall we do? And a little Q&A. Uh, yeah, Thanksgiving came and gone. Man, I can't eat like I used to be able to. I was pretty out of shape, uh, pretty bordering on, bordering on very, until I was about 20 years old in college. The problem with losing weight, and there's not many problems, because, you know, you'll be healthier, you'll fit into your clothes better, you'll probably live longer. But the problem is, your mind doesn't always adjust back to the pre-overweight concept of how much food you should actually be eating. (laughs) So you want to still eat like, I used to be able to eat like three plates of uh, Thanksgiving food, probably well into my mid to late 20s, even though by then uh, I wasn't in the shape I am now, but I was still in decent shape. I want to eat like I was eating when I was like 19, when I was like 45 pounds overweight. I still want to eat like that, but you can't, so you suffer. You suffer after having that uh, delicious turkey and stuffing and, oh, baked mac and cheese homemade. Oh, my God. And even even had some Louisiana gumbo that was absolutely insanely good. And then I suffered for, like, the whole day afterwards. So I hope you had a good Thanksgiving. I hope you had a really good one uh, because it's a time to rest, which is what I've had so little of this year. Not to play the martyr, but uh, I was thinking about it. Uh, I, I spoke to someone, and I've been to something like 12 conventions this year. Uh, of my own you know, volition, of course. I didn't have to do that. I wanted to pedal a certain NES guidebook, of course. I wanted to get out there, do some cool panels, meet the, meet you awesome p- folks out there, take some pictures, sign some autographs, do some uh, strange interviews every now and then. It's all fun. But I'm fucking exhausted at this point. Uh, but the NES Marathon went very well. Thank you so much. I don't, is this the first podcast since the NES Marathon? I believe it is. Now, I did one afterwards. I can't even keep track of time anymore. That's where I'm at. I need Ian to help me keep track of time. And we'll get to Ian in a second. Uh, fortunately, Ian's still not feeling well. Hopefully, we'll have him back uh, the next pre-Christmas podcast. If not, we'll see you hopefully in 2017 with him. Or else I'll just hire Frank to come over and we'll talk about the Yankees and uh, gardening and how to make the best lemon chicken uh, in the oven and maybe a, a sweet potato pie, which he's actually he actually makes for Thanksgivings. Anyway, so that's what's going on. Thanksgiving, end of the new year, Christmas shopping is always fun. I have a new NES Punk video in the works. It'll only be my fourth for the year. 
due to, well, the aforementioned conventions didn't help and completing a book. Also completing an app. Also an app. Should be available on iOS right now, hopefully. Mm, by the time you listen to this, I'm hoping. Uh, watch for my tweets as well, but if, you, if you're on your phone, you can hopefully search for it at the App Store. Uh, look up Ultimate NES, it should come up. Or the website, ios.ultimatenes.com, and then hopefully the Droid version will be out uh, soon after at droid.ultimatenes.com. So what is the app? I have it on my phone here. Uh, the app is is uh, your guide to the NES library. It has some parts of the book, not all, but you're going to be able to scroll and search for games. And you'll get some information from the book, like, you know, the the name of the game, the card image, the variant image of cards, number of players, year it came out, genre, developer, you know, publisher, the star rating. You'll be able to rate the games yourself, which is cool. Then after a certain amount and a later update, the user ratings will appear. appear. You'll, um, you'll be able to add it to your collection on your phone to track what games you have or games that you want. Uh, there's screenshots from the book here. And then you can even look at the estimated cart value, uh, complete in box value, and the sealed value, which you cannot get that in the book because that changes, uh, you know, week to week. And you can even browse for game listings on Amazon and eBay. So that's something cool. There's going to be 70 games that will have tips and codes that will launch this. The goal is eventually to have the tips and codes for all 800 plus NES games included. And eventually down the line, uh, you're going to be having the button codes for the games, but that'll be probably like version 1.2 or so. This is going to be 1.0. Also, accessories is starting off with the ones from the book, as well as system uh, variants. Right now, there's three. We're going to add more, including the good old NES Classic Edition uh, is in here. But one of the cooler things about this, one of the things I'm excited about, besides the eventually learning how to play the games for this, is there's a powerful uh, game search function uh, that's here. So what you'll be able to do is search... Picture, picture having a book, but being able to cross-reference games, be able to search by any criteria from the book. So you'll be able to search by game genre, years it came out, the, your, your own rating of the game, or the community rating of the game, or the book or app rating of the game, number of players, developer, publisher, the availability if you want to search for a common game or a rare game, and the price or any combination thereof. So if you wanted to search for a platformer that was released by Konami or Capcom that came out in the years 87, 90, or 93 for some reason that cost 20 bucks or less, you'll be able to put that in and spit it out, which I think is a really cool thing to do. I can probably do that right now. Okay, so what do you want me to do? Let's do, um, let's do any game that, that came out, that was developed by Konami, or Capcom. We'll say developed by Konami or Capcom. You know, they develop 99% of their games. Eh, 95% Konami. Sometimes it's published games from other uh, developers. Uh, da, 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 da. Where's Konami? Alphabetical order. All right. Konami or Capcom. We'll say... Uh, eh, we'll say any game above two stars. So at least two stars. We'll say lowest rating was two stars. And then we'll say the years it came out. This would be weird. 87... 90 or 93 for some reason we want to be weird and then we want to say any availability and price it has to be maximum cart value of $20 that's maximum okay and then you do that you hit search these are the games that fit that criteria you ready adventures in the magic kingdom batman returns chippendale rescue rangers 
Double Dribble, Goonies 2, Mega Man 3, Mission Impossible, Roller Games, Russian Attack, Section Z, Snake's Revenge, Stinger, Street Fighter 2010, Turtles 2, Tiny Toon Adventures 2, Top Gun, Top Gun 2, Track and Field, uh, and Trojans. Those are all games that were developed by Capcom or Konami. Oh, I forgot to put the genre. Oh, well, any genre. I forgot about that. That were uh, $20 or less and at least two stars that came out in only the years 87, 90, or 93. And on this list, let's see, how many games came out in 93 on this list? Uh, Tiny Toon Adventures 2 came out in 93, and then you had uh, da, 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 Batman Returns uh, as well on here. So so that's a pretty powerful tool right there. If you're at a convention, if you want to look at, say, all the five-star games that are under $10, all the three-star games that are uh, under $15. So you can build the collection, you could easily do it that way as well, which I think is pretty cool. And you can also search by licensed and unlicensed games, you know, things like that. Look out for the app. Hopefully it's out by the time you hear this. That would be sweet. Let's try to give Ian a call, see what's going on with the good old Ian uh, here. And uh, I know you guys are concerned about him, you know, what's been going on with him. Ian. Hello? Hey, Ian. What's going on? Welcome to the CU Podcast. Uh, long-time listener, first-time caller. <laughs> How you doing, bud? Uh, hanging in there. I'm, I'm quote-unquote working, but it's very slow, so I'm doing a lot of staring out the front door. Oh, okay. You know, yeah. the rumors of your, your death are highly exaggerated, although somewhat humorous in some of the comments in the past month or so on YouTube. <laughs> I don't know if you're, if you're looking at those or not. I, I would guess that you're being blamed for a lot of it. Oh, yes. Uh, I, according to some, I have murdered you. Um, <laughs> according to others, uh, you're you're just tied up somewhere, like in a basement dungeon, I guess. Um, and then there's a the good old Ian died of AIDS. Uh, that's just uh, the, the generic fallback hack line. But there was also yeah. the one that, uh, to get into politics, well, Ian's in a safe zone after Trump was elected, which, which I think is, is uh, you know... Because it was right after the election, actually, but no, that's not because of Trump. We're not afraid of Trump being elected. I don't think Ian is. So, well, how's it going? Uh, it's, uh, you know, it, it's, it's annoying. Um, I mean, if, if, if we want to touch on the illness briefly, we, we can. Uh, oh. since, since it doesn't seem like many people have any idea what's going on. Um, you know, just to blow through it first, uh, I, I uh, have been in stomach pain for a couple of months. Um, I think I really realized I needed to see a doctor when we're when we were recording those last let's plays. Mm-hmm. Um, I probably came through on them. Uh, you were there. You noticed. Um, and to blow through this, they thought it might have been a bacterial ulcer. They didn't really handle the timing of things well. Long story short, blood work showed it wasn't a bacterial ulcer. Um, doctor was concerned it might have been something with the surrounding organs, pancreas, uh, kidney, gallbladder, etc. Um, an ultrasound showed nothing wrong with those. So we're back to thinking it might be just an actual ulcer that the ultrasound would not have seen or something with my upper gastrointestinal tract, knock on wood, like Crohn's disease or something like that. Um, in which case, uh, I'm currently scheduling, uh, an endoscopy. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I can get that phone later. Uh, so I'm actually waiting on a phone call now for that to get that in. Um, I'm a little loopy on pain meds. I'm kind of damned if I do, damned if I don't on that. Um, uh, it's funny, as a kid, you wanted a little something extra in your medicine. Uh, as an adult, I fucking hate it. Um, <laughs> it, it I, I hate being this foggy. Um, but it's either I go to work and I'm in pain all day and I can't get shit done. Uh-huh. Um, or I take it and I'm loopy as fuck and I just hate how I feel, but I don't, you know, make any money. So, um, that's kind of tried to dial myself down to three days a week, which is kind of pushing it. It's bare minimum, but that's where I'm at. All right. So how are you doing? Oh, oh, over there? oh yeah. It's been, it's been, you know, I've been so rested the past five months. Um, the the app should be out. Knock on wood. Won't say any more right now. Good. It's just a shame. It's a shame you're going to miss out on some of these topics because the game awards is going to be coming up, and there were some great moments, like the uh, Hideo Kojima Lifetime Achievement Award, uh, where they where they treated him like Nelson Mandela. Uh, then there was also shade from Nolan North towards the actors' strike, and then the um, the acceptance award for the Impact uh, game. Uh, which was that dragon cancer, and uh, our buddy Matt Pat was one of the presenters, and boy, oh boy, was that an embarrassing moment. They they were acting like they were giving out the award for like best mobile puzzle jewel game. They didn't realize that maybe they should have taken it down a notch. But we'll get to that topic a little bit later uh, as part of my re- as part of my recap for the game awards. It was Matt Pat and I Justine giving an award for an impact game. Uh, so there you go. That's uh, yeah. <laughs> that sounds really, really painful. I mean, it's a game about cancer. Well, you know, well, they didn't. Really well, in their defense, we'll get to. In their defense, they didn't know it was going to be that game. But their other other choices included a game about an Orwellian future, the Iranian Revolution, and losing your mind to dementia. So there wasn't the greatest choices either way to be happy about whatever game was going to be chosen. Right. They, they, they knew what. They, they knew that whatever was going to win was going to have a, a somber tone to it. I'll get to that later, Ian. I'm going to feel. I'm going to take your place in a bit. So anyway, so it, you might be happy to hear that the tides have turned. Now everyone that hated you before wishes you back and thinks the podcast is unlistenable without you. So that at least <laughs> should give you some solace during your during your times of pain. It, it, it doesn't. They just miss having someone to to, to hate. They can't. They, <laughs> Um, you you need a foil. What fun is a superhero without a villain? Oh, come on. What? <laughs> I you ever, you ever think about maybe that maybe your immunity to me has worn off after after doing the podcast for three years and then you know this this might be a you know you have to find some way some way to be able to be around me. No, anyway. All but, right. Well, anyway, I should get back to work or sitting. All right. So. We'll, we're gonna hope everyone. Ho- we'll hope to have you for the for the pre Christmas episode in two weeks on the twentieth. We'll see if you're better by then. So I'm goddamn hoping for it. Um, it or, or at least a better pain drug, one that I don't hate so much to carry me through it. So, as a matter of fact, I need to uh, go rattle the uh, the cage at the doctor's office because they probably should have called me back by now. Oh, maybe that was them. So, <laughs> all right. <laughs> all right. 
All right. I'll, I'll talk to you soon. All right. Have fun. Right. Fun with the pain. Right, bye, everyone. All right. That wasn't yeah. good. <laughs> There's Ian. There you have it. Oh, Ian. Who doesn't love Ian? So, so hopefully he'll come back in the future. If not, the very least, we're going to try to do uh, – we'll try to do something where we, like – unwrap everything you guys have gotten us the past like four months almost there's a ton of shit out there good shit but shit nonetheless that you guys have gotten us that we want to unwrap and uh you know presents podcast presents it'd be nice to do it for christmas and next time i'll have like the lights up you know my and my good old kitty city holiday banner that'd be cool so the game awards happened used to be the video game awards that spike tv used to do and then I, they, they changed it over a few years ago i'm not positive why uh jeff keely uh, as I've said in the past, he does a very admirable job of putting this together. And this is an event where, you know, there's not, again, this isn't like the Academy Awards where you have like an independent, you know, funding for it. You know, the Academy puts it together. This is funded and produced by and large by the video game publishers. You know, you got your Ubisofts, you got your Activisions, you got your Nintendos, etc., etc. So there is always going to be give and take. When it comes to how much is this actual an awards program versus an infomercial. Okay? So, with that in mind, I still think, before I get into it, that Jeff Keeley has done a very admirable job since he's probably walking on eggshells. We had, of course, the very strange events that happened before where Nintendo's helping put this together. Reggie fils is uh, is on the board of directors or whatever or advisory board for this event. And you had two Nintendo fan games that were up for a nomination for Best Band Game that Nintendo had taken basically off the internet with Cease and Desist. And it was awkward because I, I guess Nintendo didn't know that was going to happen and they had them taken away. I spoke about it last one on the podcast. All right. So I didn't watch all of the, of the, of the excuse me, the Game Awards because now it includes board games and a Baccarat and other fun, fun uh, activities. No, it's still the Video Game Awards, but for some reason they want to differentiate from the Spike ones, maybe Spike TV trademark the video game awards went that fine brothers route i don't know but it's the game awards and uh here's just some of my highlights and thoughts i tweeted out some of them uh it started off with the hideo kojima what, the vanguard guard like you know life achievement award in the video game industry and of course last year they wanted to give it to him but he was still under Konami's thumb at the time, still under employment. And that was like, you know, a, a month or two after it was announced that he was probably on his way out. And, you know, Metal Gear Solid Five was still on the way to being released. Uh, so, or was it released? I don't care. It's not the point. The point is that Jeff got up there and gave a speech about Hideo Kojima where I thought for a second... He was speaking about a political, you know, a political prisoner that got out of prison after like, you know, 12 years. Like he was speaking about Nelson Mandela or, or like it was very, very strange. He, he said how it was a travesty that Kojima was not allowed to get through or last year, which, you know, you could you could make an argument for that, of course, since Konami didn't want to look like assholes, you know. They look, they, look like, they look like assholes anyway, but they didn't know what Kojima was going to say. We could have been like, screw you, Konami. I'm out of here in a few months, blah, 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 blah. You know, you know, uh, you don't know what you're doing with Simon Belmont. Uh, but Jeff Keighley, you know, said that this man has went through so much. He's endured so much. He, <laughs> he, he almost broke down in tears. 
And I thought that was a bit of an overreaction. Because at the end of the day, what happened to Hideo Kojima? He was treated like crap at his job for a few months. Had his name taken off of it one game. Had another game canceled that he's somewhat reconstructed into Death Stranding with the same cast of characters and this, and this uh, you know, from PT to this game. So, I mean, uh, it's not like this is a total washout at this point uh, for him and his career. The guy's worth tens of millions of dollars. The guy's still beloved in the video game industry, and the guy is still pursuing his dream job of making games his way, video games, and being... It's almost like it's better that he's out of Konami now because now he can do whatever he wants. His artistic integrity can, cannot be, you know, cannot be influenced or ruined. So it was a little melodramatic. And again, I think Jeff did a great job overall, but I think he went a little over the top with with him presenting Kojima as someone whose life was in shambles somehow, and now he's been resurrected. The guy was one of his lines was, you know, he was stuck in a room for three months. Most people are stuck in their shitty jobs for 30 years at jobs they don't like. (laughs) And at the very least, you know, this guy is stuck in that job for three months and still getting paid a ton of money. Other people aren't getting paid that much and doing something they don't want to do. So the guy had a bad three, four, five month period. I will take that any time. The last, I'd say two and a half years at my job at least, were not good, uh, good times, let alone three months. So... All right, he gets his award. That's a big F you to Konami from a year later. It is what it is. Jeff, pump the brakes a bit, a bit Jeff. You know, this isn't a guy that was, like, you know, wrongfully committed, uh, convicted of murder on death row for 20 years, and then they had DNA evidence set him free a week before the execution. All right. What was embarrassing, though, is that it's not like this award show has a huge amount of awards to give out overall. It's not like the Academy Awards. There, there's there's a few dozen at most, but at least with that show, you know, they can still get to like some of the lower level ones, like production design. You can see they 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 had so many awards cut for time that they couldn't even like pre, you know, uh, at least on the Academy Awards, they'll be like, oh, the technical awards were filmed uh, earlier yesterday, and they at least showed people on stage talking and getting their award, even though it was like like five seconds each. At this award show, they kept saying, well, you know, this was cut for time, but we gave the award the best fighting, you know, best fighting game in Street Fighter 2. Or Street Fighter 5, excuse me, or whatever. Was 5 come out too? I have no idea. What, what, what decade am I in? Anyway, so they kept treating it like, well, there was no time for this. Yet, they had the embarrassing skits of the Schick Hydrobot Razor. So, Schick is the sponsor. What a shock to everyone, because they had a they had a guy dressed up as a Schick Razor in a costume. With some other, I guess, guy from the Video video Game Awards or Game Awards show, like, talking to him and shilling Schick Hydro Razors. And I tweeted, real gamers don't shave. It's a funny joke, but, you know, stereotype. There for a reason. Could be partially true. But anyway, <laughs> I'm not shaved totally right now. Uh, so they had multiple skits with this guy dressed up as a Schick Razor. And they even had, like, 16-bit era little cut scenes away of, like, a, a, a chic robot 
fighting game where the shit blade is fighting a generic blade and kicking his ass, you know, like Street Fighter style. I understand you need monies to run your event. There's got to be a better way. There's got to be a better way than this blatant in your face. This is our sponsor. This is cringe worthy. Worthy. And we're going to shove it down your throat. I would be, I think the, the vast majority of audiences would have been a lot happier had they just run like four or five 30 second Schick Razor commercials throughout the event. Just their normal TV commercials. Or this this event is sponsored by Schick Razor. Blah, 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 blah. That I think would have went over better. And that I think is where the, one of the problems remains with this event. Again, is that they can't separate out the infomercial part which is so blatant i mean they would go from the awards straight to let's talk to this developer about this game that no one is either heard of or really cares about that's coming out from a developer that at least i never heard of before and we'll talk to him for a few minutes and show off some footage and that's a it's just a blatant commercial that's just who wants to give us some, give us uh, gives us the most money to advertise a game and here you, you get prime time uh, a prime time slot online it's live. It's being seen by tens of thousands of people, hundred thousand people or more. And uh, here you go. Here's your game's going to get some more, some more downloads now, some more sales. It's just they can't even pretend to disguise it. That's the problem. But I guess we have to accept it for now. We, we just have to. That aside, though, you know, there's still some good things that that were going on during the event. Then there's also some bad ones. I'll get to both real quick. Is there a reason why they combine? sports and racing into one genre there's not like a best racing game best sports game so you have to endure like uh forza being in the same category with like fifa that doesn't make any sense to me because i never knew that they were the same genre of course someone's gonna say oh they're motorsports i don't go on espn that often and see motorsports too too much they might talk about it yeah yeah the, the indy 500 hey daytona the Tono stuff's going on. It's they're different genres, especially for gaming. It, it's an entirely different set of skills, and that's where you really define it to be good at a racing game versus, say, a baseball game or even a football game. And they there's different criteria for what makes what makes a good quote unquote traditional sports game versus a an e uh, esports a motorsports or racing game. Just bizarre, and I'm glad the presenter called them out. The presenter's like, I, this is really fucking... I'm paraphrasing. He's like, well, this is weird, and I don't know why it's... It, we're combining them, but here you go. He even said it. He probably went off script a little bit. Who knows if he'll be asked back uh, to that. But I thought it was just really just strange, and it caught me off guard. What also caught me off guard uh, was the Best of Voice Actor Award going to Nolan North, who does the voice for Uncharted. He's Nathan Drake. Um Uncharted 4, I think there's a fifth one they announced, or a spinoff coming out. They'll do this forever, too. I, I always like when they say, oh, this is the last Halo game. No, it's not. This is the last Mass Effect game. No, it's not. Anyway, so Nor Nolan North comes on stage, arguably the most recognizable voice actor on the planet at this point, and he throws shade at the voice actor strike that's been going on for the past at least, what, four or five weeks? And he's a guy that's, I think, a part of this strike? And he's he comes up on stage, and so just quick background: we we spoke about it, I think a year, year and a half back, when we first brought up the voice actor strike. They're striking for like uh, for better conditions for the you know the voice being strained, having more breaks, shorter. You know they want they 
they want, uh, I guess, to be protected more, the health of their voice. But they also want, the big one is they want a you know, percentage of, of profits of game sales. That's the big stickler, the big, big stickler between them and the game publishers. Or I, don't, I don't know if they're ever going to come to an agreement there. All right, so anyway, so one of, their, one of the voice actors, at least during the strike, their motto is performance matters. So Nolan North, again, who is also, I believe, striking and is the biggest voice actor in the world, gets up on stage and says, you know what? Performance matters. The performance of the game developers, the artists, the programmers, the modelers, their performance matters. And if it wasn't for them creating these awesome games and worlds, I wouldn't have a job. So, wow. he I'm not saying he buried the voice actor strike... But he sure as hell didn't support it on stage. He actually came out not against it, though. But he supported what I always said the argument was that the game developers get treated the worst of all out of all these groups. And that if the voice actors don't get... uh, Excuse me. If the developers and coders and modelers and graphic artists don't get a, a percentage of sales, why should the voice actors demand that when they work one one thousandth at at most of the time on these games as these other guys do who work for years on a game versus voice actors that work at, uh, you know a few days like like what's going on there and of course people will say well you know they're two different issues just because one group doesn't have it doesn't mean these other groups shouldn't have it either i totally understand that but nolan north basically said these guys are getting overlooked maybe we shouldn't be tone deaf to the developers and everyone else, maybe we look like prima donnas. Again, I don't want to put thoughts in his head, but that's how it, it came off to me, where it's like, who the hell are we to demand this stuff when the coders and developers and the guys that slave away on these games for years don't get a percentage of the sales? Why should we? And if it wasn't for them, we'd have no uh, jobs to begin with. It's a valid point. You might disagree. There's a point there, and he's the biggest voice actor in the world. I don't. I just hope the other voice actors and like Will Wheaton don't like beat him up and like you know yell scab at him and hit him with their their, their picket signs. So there was one strange moment, one strange moment during the event, cringeworthy, and I missed it the first time through. So it might be better that I didn't. So uh, two big YouTubers, I Justine and Matt Pat, Matt Pat, who I uh, I've known since 2010. Back when he was posting on game trailers, even really before YouTube, they were presenting for the Impact Award. So these are games that are, I guess, they have some sort of either social re- relevance or there's something deeper about them. This isn't just, shoot, as Frank would say, run around a corner, shoot a guy in the head. So the Impact Awards featured game, uh, the Impact Award category featured games such as Sea Hero Quest, which contributed to research on dementia and understanding of, of, of that. Neurological, if you want to call it disorder, disease. Uh, I've seen my grandfather went through a form of dementia, and my grandmother. That's not fun to see. Uh, that, not familiar with that one, at all. And then there's also 1979 Revolution Black Friday, which that's a game I'm a little bit more familiar with. That has to do with a photojournalist being in Iran during the Iranian Revolution. Scary time in history, especially with stuff going on between us and Iran during then as well. Uh, so that was one of them. You had a game called Orwell, which I didn't know about at the time I read up on, has to do with sort of uh, or an Orwellian future with, um, you know, kind of touching on NSA stuff now and 
looking at all the private communications of people's lives and where do you draw the line between security and freedom, some heavy topics, and then the eventual winner, which is a game that uh, I, I should play at some point, That Dragon Cancer, which is a, a an extremely emotional journey from the footage I've seen and from the reviews, an extremely emotional journey of the couple, Ryan and Amy Green, of their son, who was diagnosed with cancer at, like, what, a year old or so? And then he died around four years old, and the ups and downs and eventual heartbreak of them losing their son to cancer. So this is the this is the game award that you are presenting for, okay? So I Justine and Matt Pat get on stage with these huge grins on their faces and are acting like they are presenting the award for cutest cat game of the year. It was really just bizarre when I went back and watched it and I, I really couldn't believe that not more was said about it at least on social media that it was just either either they didn't tell them what award they were presenting for or they didn't read up on the games or they didn't care it was like one of the three so they get up on stage and, and again they're like I'm not I'm not I'm really not trying to bury them I just want to hammer how weird this was they're smiling. Hey, we're you know, it's happy to be here. Video game awards, yeah. Impact award coming up, and the winner goes to. And before they present it, uh, Matt Pat's still happy, and he goes a little behind the scenes. This award is heavy, incredible bicep curls. The winner is that dragon cancer, and like the crowd is like hu- kind of hushed because they know that like you know like whoa okay, all right, this is gonna be some heavy stuff. From this is a guy getting up on stage. That's going to be talking about basically a, a game that was inspired from his son dying of cancer. And he actually developed it while his son was dying. And then eventually he died and he had to change the game to include that awful aspect. I can't imagine having a four-year-old die of anything, let alone cancer. So he gets up on stage. He takes the award. The camera shot is from like a 45-degree side angle of him. And I, Justine, and Matt Pat are in the picture... And they're still both smiling. At this point, I don't know if they've realized what's happened yet. That the award they just gave was to a guy who's about to almost break that in tears talking about his dead four-year-old son who died from cancer. And they probably should have caught on a little sooner because Matt, they cut to Mad Pat at least once where he's still smiling. And then like you can see the point where it clicks. Probably, unfortunately, for him about a minute too late. And again, I'm not trying to bury the guy, but it was you have to comment on this because it stood out like a sore thumb. He goes from a wide grin, like, ah, how about the award show? To, Holy shit, this guy's talking about his dead son. And, like, it's within a second, it clicks, and the smile goes down to, like, ooh. And then at that point, the director of the show should have said, okay, they obviously don't know what's going on, the presenters. Let's just cut to, like, the the... the you know, the, the one shot of the guy with no one else in the background to make sure that awkwardness doesn't happen again. But they cut back like two or three times, and then you just see I Justine like slowly, like her smile fades, and then and then Matt Pat finally realizes it. And then Matt Pat like gulps twice, which was either a holy shit, I acted like a jubilant award presenter, you know, for the best kiss at the MTV Movie Awards, didn't realizing it that he was giving out an award that he probably should have presented in a lot more of a somber way. 
He did apologize, Matt Pat, you know, afterwards, which, yeah, he got caught off guard. What are you going to do? It's hard to celebrate a guy's kid dying of cancer. There is a positivity to it that you're helping people in their own situations who either have cancer, know a loved one that has cancer, god-awful situation either way, to get through that. But you have to, in my opinion, play it safe and not be grinning ear to ear. And as you give the award even to the guy, seeing the look on his face like, holy shit, I'm going to break down crying about my dead four-year-old. Y- you got to play it safer. Just just my opinion. That was just like a holy shit. This is awkward thing that it happened. You got to live with it. You move on. There was one other moment I want to comment on, though. This one actually made me laugh out loud. The Matt Pat I just thing, thing did not make me laugh out loud. I was just like, oh my God. Like I felt like, woo. But what made me laugh out loud uh, was the Trending Gaming Award. Trending Gamer Award. And two of the nominees of the Trending Gaming uh, Gamer Award, Boogie2988, uh, Steven, who does good work. Uh, he does the Francis Wacky Gamer Guy things uh, series. But he also does some very rational analysis and discussion of gaming issues, publishing stuff, stuff having with, stuff having with gaming publishers, etc., uh, he was one of the nominees. The other uh, nominee, big one, was Angry Joe, who's been doing reviews. Uh, Ian, Ian loves the guy. Uh, we've brought him on the podcast a couple times before. And he's been doing these uh, angry reviews, like clockwork, for like six years or so. Five, six years. Guy's Guy works a lot. So, um, Boogie2988 wins. He was there to accept the award. Um, I like Boogie's work overall. I met the guy. I think he's sincere. Um, I th- I thought he went a little bit light on the Fine Brothers for that whole uh, trademark sort of thing that happened. That controversy. That's okay. No, you're never gonna uh, line up eye to eye with someone 100. percent But by and large, I think Boogie 2988 does great work. I was not familiar with like Jack Septic and a couple of the other people nominated, but I'm glad that he won. But you know who else was glad that they won? Uh, Jeff Keighley was ecstatic that Boogie 2988 won. <laughs> they cut to Jeff. And he actually does, like, a little fist pump. Like, it cuts from the crowd up to the balcony where he's talking with, like, his co-host. He does a little fist bump, and a mini jump goes, Yeah! Woo! What a moment! Ah! Boogie2988! Oh, wow! Wow, what a great moment that was! <laughs> and it, and I'm, I'm sure that Jeff Keighley met Boogie2988 at some point, or at least at the show, and was genuinely happy that he won. But I'm almost positive he was more happy that Angry Joe lost that award. Because if he had won, it would have been as awkward as Roger Goodell handing over the Super Bowl trophy to the Patriots after Tom Brady was uh, suspended for, you know, four games. That's how awkward that would have been. Even having someone else do that on their award show. Because the history between Jeff Keighley and Angry Joe, you can look it up. It goes back to like 2010 or so, 2011, at least five years at the Game Awards when it was still Spike TV. Angry Joe was there as a journalist and didn't, didn't, I don't want to say he waylaid Jeff Keeley on the red carpet or, or he did an interview with Jeff Keeley. Let's just say it didn't go well. It was sort of like Angry Joe was trying to attack Jeff. Jeff was defensive. It was awkward as all hell. And then, Angry Joe tried to follow up afterwards at the Q&A afterwards in front of the, I'll just say it, the real gaming journalists 
And Jeff kind of put him in his place, made him look like a buffoon. Which would have been fine if Angry Joe didn't do like a 20-plus fucking video about the whole experience and basically bitched about Jeff and how fake he was and how bad the show was afterwards. And you can go look up that video. I mean, it's out there. You can go look that video up if you, if you so choose. It's like, it's like 20-plus minutes. So to go from that to potentially giving, I guess, still a rival, if not a guy he doesn't like, a trending game, gamer award probably would have made Jeff physically ill. He might have thrown up on that balcony, like over the side onto people in attendance. So go back and watch his little fist bump, like mini jump. So fucking happy that Angry Joe did not win. It's I laughed out loud seeing that live, and I tweeted about it. I'm not the only person that realized what was going on there. So those were, to me, the highlights and lowlights of, of the event. And again, I think Jeff overall did a pretty admirable job with what he has to work with with the event. And uh, eventually I'll get through one of these without fast-forwarding or falling asleep. Well, lo and behold, a huge No Man's Sky update came out, which was reportedly reportedly trying to get the game to where Hello Games had promised it before it was released. They're calling it the foundation update. Like, this is where... This is this is the actual game, folks. Alright, so this came out... Version 1.1 came out on the 27th of November. And what do you have with this update? What do you have? And this is gonna be, By the way, this is going to be the first of many free patches to sort of salvage the horrible PR mode that they're in right now. Remember, this is a game one of the most talked about and hyped up games the past three, four years. And once it came out, lukewarm reviews, and then we even talked about it on the podcast with Ian and I, within like a few weeks, was it two weeks or three or a month, 90% of the player base had disappeared from the game within a month of a huge game. That is awful. So where did this patch add in here? Uh, you got normal mode, which is the original experience. Creative mode, where you can uh, build a base of operations and you can explore the universe without limits. And then a survival mode that's going to be much more challenging, like endurance mode. So there's like modular structures for building your base um, that you build based upon gathering the resources. It's actually a pretty cool idea. There's also uh, alien life forms that help research new technology, uh, farming, engineer, weapons, and science specialists that you can hire from the space stations. That to me is a cool idea. Versus just going to space stations and just talking to them and nothing really happens from it. You know, uh, you can teleport from space stations to and from your base. Sweet idea. Saves time to explore around. Uh, storage containers to stockpile resources and rare products. I'm on board. I don't have to worry about having a limited backpack supply, you know, where I can fill it up easily. Cool. Um, and then you can... Uh, you can even uh, dismantle your, your base to refund your spent resources, I guess, if you want to build it elsewhere or move to another planet and do it. So you're not totally lost when you're doing this. Uh, so there's going to be a farming system built into this. And then the ability, this is my, this was one of the ones where I was like, I cannot believe this was not in the game. The ability to purchase and customize interstellar freighters to transfer resources. That's sweet. Um, and then you can, there's new types of resources that can be discovered, star-specific resources and biome, and you can craft new items. There's, and there's also like uh, little visual things I put in here, like the ability to accentuate the feeling of flight, anti-aliasing. 
Uh, and then there's a bunch of fix, uh, if, you know, little bug fixes here and there. So the question is, though, of course, does, does this matter or is this too little too late? We're talking a game that's been out at this point. When did this come out? This came out in uh, October? September? This game's been out for at least three months. This game came out August 9th. Okay. September, October, November, December. This game's been out almost four months between the first major update. That's not good, especially when there was such ill will and lukewarm reviews and complaints about false advertising, which have, uh, uh, by the way, been dropped, at least in the UK, those complaints. That's not good at all, though, that that was coming up. It's not good when you have a game that there's a huge Reddit conspiracy thread with all the evidence about all the stuff and diamond conspiracy theories of people, interviews and videos and and images of the game that showed assets that were not there in the 1.0 version that they're now trying to put back in. Fixing crashes, that's fine. Uh, fixing stat pages, suit upgrade pods are no longer spawned in stations. Uh, Galactic waypoints not loading correctly across saves. PC now supports up to eight mouse buttons. Who the hell has eight eight mouse buttons? Look at my mouse. Well, I guess if you scroll up and scroll down, that's two. That's still a lot of buttons. I'm thinking maybe six is more than enough on a mouse. Eight? That's a lot of buttons on a mouse. Wow, that would have been useful for Unreal Tournament, all the weapons. Um, and a lot of other stuff, atmospheric stuff they corrected. So, again, this is an awesome update. Awesome update. There's space combat stuff that they fixed. Improved AI, AI combat flight patterns. Formation flying. Damage ship effects on AI starships. That's cool to me. A lot of cool stuff that they added with the freighters. Um, you can They added coloring to cargo drops to identify what is in them. Docking and freighters. This, again, I, I, a lot of audio fixes. The whole list is, list of, uh, is out there. So, again, this would have been cool, though, if half of this stuff was in the release in August or they hurried their asses off and realized, holy shit, and got this stuff out within the first couple of weeks. Obviously, though, that's a huge tall order being that the this is a lot of stuff they added in. This is a, uh, this is basically a different version of the game. This is a game that I have, as someone who never played this before, I have a lot more interest now in looking at this version of the game and seeing this is something that has to offer for me. With stuff like adding in the freighter, uh, building your bases, uh, better better uh, AI combat, stuff like that. And I'm, I wish Ian was here, who's still not feeling well, by the way. I would love to get his take on this 1.1, since he, he actually was satisfied with the game when it came out, but didn't realize about all the stuff that was promised that wasn't in there. Do they have the big dinosaur uh, added in here, though? <laughs> Is that added in? Can we get the big brontosauruses that were shown off in all the promo images and videos? I'd love to see those added in. Uh, let's see. Audio... Freighters, space combat, space fixes, visuals, terrain, atmospherics, creatures. All right. Uh, fix slow memory leak and creature role allocation. Eh, that's more technical. Improve creature animation speeds. Fix issues where some creatures' turns have the incorrect frame count. Fix occasional crash when interacting with creatures. Added brontosaurus-sized dino creatures. No, they didn't. It's not in there. I made that up. Damn it. I want to see brontosauruses. I want to see them in a game I'll never probably own or, or probably play. Ah, well. At least they tried, but it's probably too little too late unless they, you know, 
charge only 20 bucks for this on a you know put it on sale it's really strange when you wake up on a monday and you find out on espn.com there's a story about stadium events a feature story about stadium events espn.com doing a story about the game i love the most to talk about stadium events which as you know was rebranded it was first uh stadium events nintendo bought it changed it into world class track meet it was released as the only other game for the Family Fun Fitness Pad by Bandai. The packing game at the time was Athletic World, which eventually still was released from Bandai. But Nintendo's like, you know what? We want to take Stadium Events off the market. We want to do that. We want to take that game off the market. We want to rebrand it. Change the title screen. World Class Track Meet. Take your Family Fun Fitness Pad and its weird colors off the market. And we'll put them together as a power pad. World Class Track Meet combo. And come out with their, with their uh, power set. And that's what they did. So this is by Justin Heckert. Uh, and this story is goes, this is the byline. How did a boring Nintendo game from 1987 become the most coveted cartridge ever? It's a bit of a mystery. Well, a little bit of a hyperbole. It's not the most coveted cartridge ever. That would still probably be Nintendo World Championships, if you want to be honest. But, but you know, he's trying to lure people in. And this article goes through about four or five people who have either had the game or ended up buying it. It starts out with uh, one of the latest big discoveries, which is at a, a Goodwill in North Carolina. Jennifer Thompson uh, found it. Uh, went to the McDonald's across the street to access the Wi-Fi. She was sure she heard about the game before, wasn't sure. Ran back in and bought it for like, what, eight, was it $8? From the $30 she had in her bank account. And she eventually sells the game to a collector who already had one, by the way. You already had one. What a dentist! Uh, she sold. She sold it to. She got it verified at a video game store. Again, this is three years old. This is all Nintendo H two, my favorite website. Uh, she turned down the guy who at least verified it and sold it online. The good news is that for them, they were not not doing too well at the time. Uh, her husband was laid off. Jennifer's uh, husband Jeff was was laid off. And so they really needed that money they eventually got from the game. Uh, excuse me, it was not a dentist that bought it, it was an orthodontist in Indiana. So he wanted this game, a second copy of it. And it was in better condition than the one he had. He had one in the box already, but there was a little cut on the back of the box and it was missing the instruction manual. So he wanted this one instead. In this story, I don't want to rag on this orthodontist too much. His name is... Uh, Todd Curtis, 41, year old, 41 out of Indiana. He he says that in this article, I never had a, a Honus Wagner rookie. That's what this game is to this hobby. I don't know how many Honus Wagner cards are out there compared to how many statements there are. If this game is really that rare, you can see it 20 years coming at, up at Christie's where people are going to pay $900,000. Todd, I will see you in 20 years in 2036, when there's no way in hell this game will even get to a third of the price of $900,000. I'd be shocked if this gets to 150 or or 100 complete in box. I just don't see that happening. 
people forget when they talk about rare comics or baseball cards and try to think that video games will get to that same upper echelon, the pool of people that could potentially and already collect baseball and comic book, uh, baseball cards and comic books is like a hundred times, and I'm being conservative, could be 500 times the size. So the, one of the reasons why I like the Onus Wagner, Honest Wagner card, you know, the famous tobacco card, which is even like the rarest card out there. It's just the one that, well, he's a Hall of Famer. It, they took it off the market, supposedly, because he didn't want to be associated with tobacco products. The reason why that shut up in price is that you had guys like Wayne Gretzky bidding on it. You had guys like Todd McFarlane that wanted that card to bid it up to that insane level. These are guys that were hugely famous, multimillionaires, the tops in both their fields, whether it's hockey or a comic book artist. So these are guys that they want to get in and create waves and want a status symbol. I'm not saying that there's not going to be a big like Hollywood actor or big musician, hell, Kanye West likes a TurboGrafx-16, that could get into video game collecting and push these game prices up to an insane amount. I just think it's very fucking unlikely for that to occur. Because retro video game collecting is still such a small niche. And I know that you guys out there, that you want to legitimize this, you want to retire on it, and then support the next six generations of your family. I totally get that. And hell, I wish it could happen too. If I ever want to have kids, they'll be set for life and then their kids' kids. I just don't see it happening. I'm keeping it real right now. And this is just something that, again, owns some very high-priced video game items. So it's not like I'm a fucking hater or I'm fucking jealous of you. Because I own games that are very expensive too that are worth five figures. And I'm still saying I don't see it ever happening, ever, 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 where you're going to compare the most valuable video game to the most valuable baseball card or comic book. I don't think it'll ever get to that point. At least in our lifetimes. If you want to you want to come back and pull me in my frozen head 150 years from now, maybe I'll be in crow then and say, all right, you know, the game's worth $800,000. But then again, that's probably because of the awful inflation in the future. When we're all in the same credits on our phones that, you know, we all universal new world order currency. I just don't see that happening again. A video games, at least a game like stadium events, will never have the cultural significance of a baseball Hall of Famer or the first appearance of freaking Batman or Superman. Batman or Superman, uh, a shitty power pad game that got re-released that's worth $3. Hmm, yeah, I don't see those lining up on the same scale of collectability. I I think one outweighs the other uh, just by a tad. So the article goes on and talks about my pal Tim Atwood out in out in uh, Michigan talking about having his uh, 18 sealed ones and now still has a case of six sealed stadium events. You might have heard us talk about it on the podcast a bit. It was a whole series of, of, of videos where we talked about him coming out about it um, and then people on Nintendo Age attacking him because not all everyone on Nintendo Age, but some of you are fucking babies and feel threatened when a bigger collector comes out of the shadows and makes you feel insignificant like a little kid. And that's basically what a lot of you guys did. Not all. You're going to say Pat hates all Nintendo Age. No, I don't hate all, all of you. I hate some of you on Nintendo Age. I also like some of you on Nintendo Age. And I love a few of you as well. And I'll give some of you a hug. Anyway, but he was interviewed. Uh, he's 60. 
Uh, it was great, great to see, great to see a picture of Tim Atwood smiling. Ian and I still owe him a sandwich. Just talk about, you know, when he worked at the warehouse, he saw a pallet of cardboard boxes in the corner of the warehouse, and it was 250 sealed games. It, it, 250 sealed cases of games for the NES, uh, made before 91. 250 by times 6, Pat Math, that's 1,500 sealed NES games. We're talking values of probably just the statements alone, ones if if he got full a value for, and the collecting world didn't know about it because then the prices will go down if you know there's 18 out there, <laughs> hundreds of thousands of dollars for 200, or excuse me, over 1,000 sealed NES games. Again, to the right buyers. So he still owns them. Um, and then he regrets... <laughs> maybe he does, maybe he doesn't. But he posted the picture on Nintendo Age. He talks about it in the article. Um, and then he said, in quotes, that's when the freaking shitstorm happened. I should have kept my big mouth shut. And one of the reasons he says that is because the amount of calls and people trying to find out where this guy's at... And not not necessarily for nefarious reasons where they want to steal the games from, but they want to get these games for themselves. Either get them because they they desire it for their collections, or want to want to uh, snoodle him where I just made out snoodle him out of these games for a cheap price to flip it. Say, oh, I want this game. I want this game my whole life. Here's a hundred bucks to try to sell it for twenty grand. You know, and there's assholes out here that would do it. Some of you listening, you're that fuckwad that would try to do that to to my buddy Tim Atwood. Don't think that you're not that person out there. If you're listening out there, there's one or two of you out there, fuck you. Anyway, so that's what Tim wanted to try to avoid. You know, having his name out there and so. So, but what's what's cool about this article is that the author tried to talk to people at Bandai Nintendo and figure out what the hell happened with this game. Was there a recall? Was it pulled from shell, shelves? Was the game destroyed? And from the the article, there's still no clear answer what happened to same events. What happened? No one at Bandai knows. They, there's no one there that was still working there, but, you know, 30 years later, I, that answered him. Uh, but what he did go into was a pres- the president at the time, Minoru Arakawa, Arakawa, he thought he liked the technology and he wanted to buy it and relaunch it as a power pad. That's common sense because that's what happened. And it was rebranded, same events as World Class Track Meet, so as not to confuse the market, according to Gail Tilden, who worked for Nintendo at the time. So we do know, like, that's the basic stuff that, that's even common sense you can work out without even realizing what happened behind the scenes. But we're not sure what happened to the same events that already existed at the time. We're not entirely sure. We obviously don't, we obviously know it's bullshit that it was test marketed. That's bullshit. There's no evidence of that. All the evidence to, evidence to the contrary. They, they, oh, they only released 300 to Woolworths in New York. That's all guard. It was nationwide. We know that. Uh, but they're not saying Nintendo and Bandai. They're not saying. Uh, Howard Phillips was asked about this. And he doesn't even know offhand. So he thinks that there were 10,000 copies of Stadium Events produced. Maybe. In quotes, Howard Phillips says, That sounds like a crazy big number given that so few have shown up. 10,000 copies for the North American release was close to a minimum run. If there were 10,000, I don't know where they ended up. I don't have recollection of us burying them in a landfill. Destroying them or reworking them would have been a laborious task. Getting the label off would have been overly laborious on a per-unit basis. So the rarity is a mystery, isn't it? 
the amount of money it would have cost to even have workers come into all the retail stores, gather the 10,000, drive them all back to freaking Nintendo headquarters in Seattle, in North America, get them out of the truck, and then destroy them, throw them in a landfill. Why would Nintendo care that much at that point? Remember, this is for a peripheral that is almost as rare as Steam events. It's not like you can walk out on eBay anytime you want to walk out or search on eBay or walk out to your local game shop and find a Family Fun Fitness pad. So I think what's happened here is we have a sort of minimum that Howard Phillips says was produced. I think he could be incorrect. And of course, who the hell am I to question Howard Phillips? If they were to produce 10,000 Steam events, that would be it would be a fair, reasonable guess that that means they produce at least 10,000 Family Fun Fitness Pads, correct? Because without the fitness pads, you can't play the freaking game. But no one ever talks about there being a Family Fun Fitness Pad recall. That's never brought up. No, no one ever says they destroyed all these Family Fun Fitness Pads or those are locked away. What, do they ship them back out overseas to the Bandai warehouse? That could be a possibility. But no one in any of these retail stores across the U.S. have ever come out and said that. We have no one at Nintendo that knows exactly what happened. And no one at Bandai has spoken about it. So my gut is that that 10,000 mark is way off. And my gut's going to say they maybe made, I don't know, a few thousand of these at most. Maybe a thousand of them. There wasn't 10,000 Family Fun Fitness Pads made. I can almost guarantee you that. How many collectors out there have even that? How many collectors have a complete in box Athletic World variant that came with uh, with the Family Fun Fitness Pad? That's just as rare as the Steam Events in box almost. So they're about on the same level to me. The Family Fun Fitness Pad and Steam Events. Not a huge amount out there. But what's interesting though is that Howard Phillips kept all his records, according to the author, author's uh, communication with me. And I was interviewed, which I'll get into this in a bit. I was interviewed for this uh, article. Uh, I think it was back in, ooh, like six, seven months ago at least. Howard Phillips, uh, he's not in the country right now, Howard Phillips. But he's pretty sure if he gets back and goes through his storage and his records, he'll be able to find the documents he thinks that could shed light on this. That could be pretty big news. He speculated that uh, Arakawa told Bandai to, have, to take back their stock, which would have been a boat headed to the U.S. Or they made it to a U.S. warehouse and then were shipped back. He talked about Arakawa strong-arming a small company like Bandai. He seriously believed at least 10,000 of every game was made. What happened to the stock is a mystery. And then, of course, no one at Bandai knows what the hell is going on. So... Let's hope that Mr. Phillips eventually returns, finds those records, and says in black and white, here's the directive from Arakawa that said, Bandai, take back these, take back the unsold, you know, 900, uh, 9,900 copies of the game, whatever. The, the, the 9,000 of the 10,000 that didn't make it to stores or didn't sell, we want you to take these games back. We're going to ship them back to you, and you can. And it's your responsibility to destroy them, or else the directive was that we want this game back and destroy them. Either way, we'll be a lot closer. The breadcrumbs will lead to one of two two spots, or one of three spots. Uh, they weren't taken out of stores. They weren't recalled. They were shipped back to Nintendo, or else there was an extra shipment, say, 
the main shipment never even made it over to the U.S. and they turned the they turned the freaking freighter ship around, or or never took the cargo off of that ship and turned it back around. And now either Bandai destroyed it or it's in some fucking Bandai warehouse somewhere in Japan. And boy, I hope they still have like five thousand sitting there because there's a distinct possibility that this is where the story could lead if Howard Phillips gets back to us eventually. So let's. I'm going to keep in track, or excuse me, keep in touch with the author with the author of the article, and I'm going to needle him every few months to see what Howard has to say. Hell, I'll pay Howard to get, a, get that information, to put this to bed once and for all. So here's the article about me. Pat Contry, who co-hosts one of the most popular gaming podcasts on iTunes, the Completely Unnecessary Podcast, owns every other officially licensed NES game, but says he won't buy Steam events on principle. He recently self-published Ultimate Nintendo... Guide to the NES Library, a 437-page book that rates NES games on a five-star system, and Stadia Events scored 1.5 stars. Meanwhile, hundreds of other games are hardly worth anything at all. Super Mario Brothers, arguably the greatest NES game of all time, is worth around $11. In quotes, Pat says, You can buy an identical copy of the game, world-class track meet, for $3. Pat says, Stadia Events gets pushed up on a pedestal. I despise the aura around it, an aura of elitism. It draws out the worst of the hobby. I couldn't even uh, pronounce the sh- my own quote properly without mumbling it. <laughs> so, again, look at this article. I've gone on far enough. Uh, it seems like that Tim's probably going to keep that last case of six games. He's already opened up the other two uh, cases and sold off the last 12 of the past few years, which we talked about before. What's funny is that the Video Game, uh, game Authority, uh, they're the guys who grade these games, the authority um, always thought there was only five sealed copies. Well, you add 18 from Tim, is actually 23. So they're not exactly the authority, are they? Nope, they're not. Tim doesn't need the money, it says. Uh, he said he once given someone a $1,000 game for a single dollar just to see the look on that person's face. That's probably what we mentioned. He gave someone a Mario uh, Mario Brothers arcade uh, black box NES game he basically gave someone basically for nothing who loved just collecting uh, Mario merchandising games so the orthodontist is happy to have a better copy now he can sell his extra one please don't hoard these games Mr. Orthodontist please sell them off there's no reason to have two or three Steam events games uh, complete in box but even they admit that the game's horrible and it's fucking awful and there's more there's more so go read the article I show up for a bit um, it's great to see Tim, the look on Tim's face, just smiling ear to ear. We're going to buy you a, a sandwich at some point, Mr. Atwood. We're going to buy you a sandwich. Hell, I should have you out to a freaking, because you're at the Portland Retro Gaming Expo. I'll try to, uh, I'll try to see if we can do that. This was originally announced a year ago, but now there's some more details about it. About the partnership between Nintendo and Universal, as in Universal Studio, you know, resorts, the theme parks. This is cool stuff. So this was breaking, breaking news. Ah, ah. So this is like the press release they came out with from the Universal Orlando blog about Universal, Nintendo Universal Parks. Uh, imagine the fun of stepping into a larger-than-life Nintendo adventure. Gigantic piranha plants spring to life. Question blocks, power-ups, and more surround you. And Mario and all his friends are there to pull you into a brand new world. You'll enter an entire realm filled with 
filled with iconic Nintendo excitement, gameplay, heroes, and villains. And it's coming to three Universal theme parks around the globe. So it's coming to uh, Universal Studios Japan, Orlando, and Universal Studios Hollywood. Expansive, immersive, and interactive. They'll be highly themed and authentic environments filled with multiple attractions. Shops and restaurants. Because you definitely want a Metroid-themed burger joint. That's fun. You'll feel as if you're playing inside your favorite games in real life. There'll be something for everyone regardless of their age or gaming experience level. They will be open they will open separately over the next several years. Alright. So they did a little uh little YouTube video, a couple minutes long, and you know, it has uh, Miyamoto talking uh, about the parks along with Mark Woodbury, president of Universal Creative. Uh, then it goes on to say in this release, the goal of everyone on this project is clear, to bring the characters, action, and adventure of Nintendo video games to life with Universal theme parks. And to do so in a new, in new and innovative ways that capture what makes them so special. All the adventure, fun, and whimsy, experience, okay, blah, blah, blah. All right, whatever. So this is a fantastic idea, obviously. This is a no-brainer. First and foremost, I can't see even the big, I hate Nintendo cynics out there, everyone that says Nintendo's going out of business every day, Thinking, which by the way, this will help, you know, maybe extinguish those weird arguments that Nintendo's in, in danger. Those people that think that Sega's in a better spot than Nintendo. Okay, sure. Yeah, I'm looking forward to those uh, Streets of Rage theme park rides that you're going to be seeing in your lifetime. Anyway, so the question is going to be, you know, what's the experience going to be like? We have 3D now which will help with the immersive experience. You already had sort of 3D type rides before, you know, Back to the Future, which became the Simpsons ride. You're going through a world. Will, will this be like, it's a small world after all, which is terrifying, where you're just, you know, you're on like a, you know, a, a boat. <laughs> you're just floating through terrifying Nintendo childlike creatures singing songs that will haunt your nightmares. What is this going to look like? And we don't know. I mean, I, when you're planning a theme park, you know, you're talking three, four, five years before this thing comes out. You have to do the layout. You got to start researching how to do these rides. Then you have to actually build the rides and research it, make sure that people aren't going to get killed. You don't want people's heads getting lopped off, you know, on your Smash Brothers ride, which could be interesting. Maybe, maybe it's like real life where you, you fight and you get killed and you get thrown off a cliff. What? Oh, no, come on, Pat. Try to, don't be cynical. Anyway. So, there's a lot of potential here, obviously. It's just what direction they're going to go. Uh, what comes to mind to me is that I, I, I'm actually thinking too, too low-tech for probably what this will end up as. You know, I'm thinking, like, having a Zelda labyrinth that you can actually walk through. And, like, you have to, like, push blocks to solve puzzles. I know they announced that, like, that Zelda trap room sort of uh, event in various locations. But uh, imagine that at the park where, like... They give you a group of like five people you go through and, you, and each room has a puzzle you have to figure out. And it's, maybe it's timed. Maybe there's like holograms of, I don't know, holograms of like, uh, of you know, the, the, all, the, all the, the creatures, the peanut butter jelly looking sandwich and it eats your large shield. You know, the skeleton guys, uh, the boomerang wielders. Well, I forget their names. I'm doing a podcast by myself, you know, two hours in. Come on, cut me some slack. I don't, I don't have the freaking manual in front of me. Anyway, off the rocks. Well, they're not in the dungeons. Uh, ropes, the snakes you got to avoid, the bats. Anyway, 
So that could be cool, but maybe that's too low tech for actually building like a dungeon. Um, obviously, go karts, Mario Kart. Come on, come on. Is that just the no brainer of no brainers? Except uh, go karts are not exactly safe. I I don't know if I can picture Universal doing go karts unless it was like a controlled ride where you don't have. Again, like a Back to the Future ride where you don't have any control over it. Like, you're just on a track. You're not actually controlling it. They're not giving you banana peels to throw at other drivers so they spin out and crash horribly. That's the game I'd want. I'd want a real... (laughs) I want it to be like Action Park, New Jersey. There's risk of bodily harm, maiming, uh, first-degree burns, or, or, or death involved with my attractions. That's what I want. I want a shell... A real turtle shell, a real shell, mine from a hundred-year-old uh, turtle, I can drop, and that the cart behind me can roll over and spin out and break the driver's neck. That's the game I want. I want to be able to throw. I want to be able to throw bombs. They actually give you a bomb that you can throw and and kill people. Of course, you sign a waiver, or <laughs> drop banana peels and have other cars spin out. I mean, that's a little less gruesome, you know. But, th- you know, that- that's what I'm talking about. Uh, that's a no-brainer. But, again, I don't see them allowing that at something as fancy as a universal where, you know, it's probably a little more controlled and safe and we don't worry about lawsuits. What would you see for a Super Mario game? What, what You know, like, what, what could that possibly be? Would that be like, you know, it's 3D, you're running through yourself, um, it, would he be talking to you? It would be like, the, I don't know. Like Luigi's Mansion. I mean, they have that freaking Ghost Manor freaking ride. Would it be just be like that from Disney? Sort of Disneyfied. Would it be? I don't know. Maybe it'll be uh, Mario's Big Scalping Adventure. <laughs> they have you go up against fifty other people. They have a mock Target store, and you got to run through and grab the 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 the, the undershipped Nintendo item of the uh, du jour of the moment and you got to flip it on eBay quickly they'll they'll have computers set up to get the most value that can be fun and the winner gets that rare rare item that still won't be out uh, enough in quantity by the time these theme parks open in 7 years yeah yeah Mario's big scalping adventure or you'll have uh, I don't know uh a links YouTube copyright maze where you have to edit, produce, edit a Nintendo-themed review without getting a copyright claim by Nintendo, and then you'll have uh, you know the evil Nintendo corporate uh, Goombas running after you in suits, <laughs> and you got to hop on them to get your hard-earned uh, YouTube review money. Come on, that's clever. I'm thinking this up on the spot mostly, uh, you know. Uh, but but in all seriousness, I think this is a, a fun idea. I will definitely check it out. Uh, the one in uh, that comes out in California when it does. It's just, again, uh, how big will this be? Will this be a part of a theme park? You know, Universal Studios, at least I've been to in L.A., pretty big. So, I mean, I'm sure you can just knock down some of the older rides and create, like, the own, like, mini Nintendo world there. But seriously, restaurants, though, that's a little much. Obviously, the shops, oh, God, now I just thought about something. Holy shit. I, I can almost guarantee you they're going to have exclusive merchandise at these theme parks now. So you have scalpers 
hey, Nintendo, you want people through through the door? Have all these asshole scalpers say, all right, we're, we're going to open our theme park, and every month we're going to have a, a new exclusive item. Oh, God. They're going to have the exclusive, like, plush or exclusive amiibo of the month or season at Universal Nintendo Parks now. Oh, well, oh, oh really? God, hopefully Nintendo's not listening, and hopefully I just didn't give them an idea they didn't have before. Oh, Jesus, God. Please, no exclusive merchandise. Maybe they want a certain NES guidebook. No, 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 no. It's too dangerous, Pat. It's too dangerous. It's time for some sponsors. Time for some sponsors. Loot Crate. On a quest for epic gear, housewares, and collectibles this holiday season, Loot Crate offers an epic range of pop culture items for less than $20 a month. Whether you're shopping for the geek in your life or you are that geek, you dirty geek, Loot Crate is the best surprise you know is coming. Every month there's a different theme and new exclusive items you can only get with Loot Crate. Treat yourself every month or give the gift of geeking out to a friend or loved one. Check out LootCrate.com slash Pat and use code Pat to save 10% on any new Loot Crate sign-up. And it's December's theme is going to be this. They're always watching. They design a system to keep you down. They're meddlesome. Hello, friends. It's time for a revolution. Fight the power and pave the way for a brighter tomorrow with December's rebellious crate featuring exclusive items from Assassin's Creed, Mr. Robot, excellent show, Firefly, excellent old show, and more, including an exclusive Funko Pop figure, the monthly t-shirt, and pin. You have until December 19th at 9 p.m. Pacific to subscribe and receive the rebellious December crate. After the cutout hap- happens, it's over. You gotta wait the next month. Again, head over to lootcrate.com slash pat, enter code pat, and save 10% off your new subscription today. Hey, American Express card members. Hey, guys. There's never been a better reason to get out and shop small in your neighborhood, like Luna Video Games. Because now, through December 31st, you could earn two times your rewards when you shop small with an enrolled American Express card. Learn more and enroll your eligible card today at AmericanExpress.com slash shop small offer. It always feels two times as good to support local stores. That's what I always say. And now it's two times as rewarding. Prepaid and corporate cards, cards issued by other final financial institutions, the Plum Card, not sure what that is, and certain other cards are not eligible. Record, reward cap and other terms apply there. So he's back in the news. Uh, he's Swedish. He's the biggest YouTuber out there. He's closing in on 50 million YouTube subscribers. 50 million! 50 million, but he has some issues with YouTube. He has some big time issues. Now, before this, there's been a lot of big YouTubers talking about how YouTube's been changing the past month or so. Changes in the YouTube algorithm. Once upon a time, YouTube used to favor uh, people that uh, YouTubers and content creators they used to favor were they wanted you to watch as many videos as possible, shorter videos were cool. That would mean that those would get recommended to people. Uh, they'd be pushed up the search ranks. That was rewarded. Around 2011, that algorithm changed. Now it was focused on watch time, where it didn't, it didn't matter. It didn't matter if your three-minute video was watched a lot. They'd rather you sit down and watch a longer video and watch a higher percentage of that video. That change in 2011 allowed uh, the rise of a new type of YouTuber, the Let's Player. 
to, to gain in huge popularity. And PewDiePie is sort of the prototypical Let's Player, and that's one of the reasons why he shot meteorically to the top of YouTube. He was a Let's Player. He was he was uploading these videos from various parts in Europe, which helped him gain traction in Europe, and he got bonus for that. And it's a whole thing. Uh, there's lots of reasons why he, he got up there. Consistent content, but the watch time, the Let's Plays, things like that. And he has a very loyal, younger fan base. You know, teens, preteens, that sort of thing. Okay? So, he's recently, though, lashed out at, at YouTube. Recently lashed out. Um, he's frustrated because, I guess, and I'll check out on VidStat myself right here, the number of views his, his average videos have gotten over the past month or more have gone down. I've gone down considerably, like 30, 40%. And another YouTuber is like, uh, what is it? Jack Septic Eye has said the same thing. Have said like, well, what's going on? I'm putting out the same content, allegedly. And um, my views are down. What's going on? So PewDiePie has put out a couple of videos. And it seems like more and more his videos are just talking about behind the scenes stuff at YouTube, which could be affecting his views, but I'll get into that in a bit. But... He put out a couple of videos, and, and in one of them, he noticed that, like, the amount of views have gone down for for the uh, the recommended or suggested videos. Has, like, plummeted a lot. Which he says is due to the fact that, they, oh, they changed this algorithm. They've now gone from the watch time algorithm to uh, user engagement. So now they're encouraging... Behind the scenes, uh, uh, apparently, YouTube wants... They're going to favor videos where there's a lot more thumbs up and a lot more comments. Like, that's going to be dri- the driving force. They want you. They want YouTubers to get their video out there and maybe even help promote via social media and get clicks. They want to bring outside eyes in. Or at least, I guess, have more engagement and want to make sure that this is content that they know that the users are really into. Like, how do you tell... I mean, there's clickbait videos where get tons, they get tons of views, but you don't know if the users are actually into that video or like them. I guess in YouTube and Google's eyes, they want to make sure that they're, the, the people are being engaged, meaning they're paying attention. And my gut tells me that this is a move that has to do with advertisers. Because an advertiser can buy... You know, you, you can buy advertising do- dollars, you know, TV sh- any TV show you want. But it's going to vary how into that show, I guess, people are from show to show. So your money might be better spent, even if it's a lot more, on a show that, like The Walking Dead, where you know, oh my God, everyone's watching it. Versus, I don't know, reruns of, I don't know, uh, CIS, where maybe you're not paying attention as much. You know what I mean? So I'm guessing that could apply to YouTube as well. And they're thinking, okay... Maybe the advertisers thinking they'll get more bang for their buck. We'll be able to sell more advertisements, and we'll be able to market our videos better to advertisers. That's I'm just spitballing. That could be a consideration. But PewDiePie threatened to shut down, not to leave YouTube. Uh, Alex, excuse me, Alex Felix. I call him Alex before. His name is Felix Shelberg. Felix, Alex. I like the name Alex though. Felix. PewDiePie threatened to shut down his his uh, channel and start a new one at 50 million subscribers, which he's closing in on. And his argument is that like YouTube's trying to ruin me, which is of course that's just that, that doesn't make any sense. Um, and 
he said, well, what's the point of having 50 million subscribers if only a million or two watch my videos? That's a problem all YouTubers had just because I have 200,000 subscribers doesn't mean I'm going to have any video come out where I'm going to even have half that many views. That's just the reality of subscribers. But he wants to start all over. So he said, I've decided that the only way to stop my channel from dying, I know you're going to think I'm joking, but I'm going to delete my channel. I think it's going to be pretty fun. I'm excited to delete my channel and start fresh with a new shitty channel probably. I won't quit YouTube. I'll just delete this channel. So again, this is due to like a 30 to 40% dip in usual viewing figures this year. I'm going to look him up right now on VidStatX. PewDiePie, let's see. Let's see. So let's see. His views. PewDiePie averages in the past four months, past six months, he's averaged, uh, wow. He averaged per day 8 million views. Past three months, it went down to 6.3 million views per day, which is still a ton. That's what I get in like probably three months, four months, five months. Um, And then now in the past week, he's only averaging 2.8 million views a day. That's it. Which I've done higher than that. I think the most I've ever done was like three and something, three and change. I don't think I've ever reached four in one month. Keep in mind. So... And he's still going up. Well, he's he's slow to a paltry 22,000 subscribers a a day only the past month before the past uh, week or so. He's put out these videos saying, oh, I want to delete my channel at 50 million, which has led people to subscribe to him, even people that hate him, to see if he actually deletes his channel, which has definitely happened. Yeah, he went from 10,000 a day. He does his announcement, 47,000, 100,000, 82,000, 75. So by the time you even hear this, this clip, he might have broken it already. He might have even broken 50 million and could already have to leave this channel. So, I don't know if YouTube gives a shit, though. Like, like why would YouTube care if even the top 5 or 10 YouTubers quit? Because at the end of the day, these individual YouTubers aren't making Google that much coin. Because... The dirty secret, or not secret, is that YouTube doesn't have anywhere close to the amount of ads required to fill even, you know, even half the video views on the platform. So if PewDiePie quit tomorrow and his whatever per million a day, uh, his three point whatever million views a day disappeared entirely. Those ads would just go to other people and just and just increase the fill rate or the percentage of ads that are viewed or that appear before a video. They would just fill elsewhere on the, you know, billions of views that happen per day on the platform. So him threatening to quit isn't exactly like YouTube's going to be in trouble at that point or Google. They can be like, okay, dude, we're going to make that money up elsewhere. And they'll just do their YouTube Google shrug. (sighs) It could be a play at leverage, though. Maybe he thinks that, hey, I'm the biggest YouTuber. It's bad publicity if I'm talking trash about YouTube. But he's been talking about trash about YouTube for like the past year. Going back to complaining about React videos. And he's complained about clickbait on videos. Even though he's known for having clickbaity videos and really bad clickbait pictures. So... He's he I think I think he's just trying to st- stay relevant and trying to stay in the in the public eye. Keep in mind 
if even he quit YouTube, PewDiePie, I think, according to Forbes, made like $15 million or $12 million last year. The guy's worth a ton of money. He's set. He's okay. He's not going to be starving for a ham sandwich anytime soon. So it's not like you should feel bad even if he, he deletes his channel, starts a new one. And even if he deletes his channel, he's already tested this. He's not dumb. He's already started, I think I think he started a fake channel. I read one of these articles that he got like over a million subscribers in like a day. By saying, oh, check out this parody channel or whatever that I made up. And he got over a million subscribers in a day. So he can start all over and get probably 10, 20 million on, in, like, in like six months. You know, he's not in bad shape. You know, he was on what? He was on uh, Stephen Colbert's show. He was featured on South Park a year or two ago. He's at the top. Can he complain about a 30 or 40% drop in subscribers? Absolutely. That's his right to do that. There's something going on. And YouTube should be more upfront about what's going on. And, and, and there is a different issue as well, by the way. I'm going off on a tangent. About there is a bug happening in Review Tech USA, spoken about it, and other people, where... When you upload a video, for some reason, subscribers are being lost and people are being unsubscribed randomly. This has come up in lots of areas. Like A lot of YouTubers are talking about this. So uh, I haven't looked at my videos. Who knows? I don't track my subscriber rate that closely when I upload. But let's assume that's happening. That is bullshit that's happening. I'm not on Google's side here. If, if people are being unsubscribed randomly or unsubscribed for some weird bug when you upload a video, that's bullshit. Obviously, and Google should take care of that. However, it's an entirely different issue, and it's Google's right to change an algorithm to what they think is best for their business. If they don't think these long-form videos is what's best for their business anymore, and they change the algorithm, I hate to say it, tough shit. Where were these big YouTubers all complaining about the change in algorithm in 2011 when they changed away from the short form, which totally fucked over the more highly produced short videos that were on the platform, and especially the animators. They were asked out. It was shitty, but it happened. And were these guys crying over that? I just think it's it's just weird to see the same YouTubers who got into such the higher echelon of content creator status on YouTube. They benefited hugely from the change in algorithm to go from short video to watch time via their Let's Play videos, which I've talked about before about my love or hatred of Let's Play videos. These same people that are now making tons of money off it, and these are the same people now complaining that, well, maybe YouTube's going in a, a different direction after five years. And they're going to complain that their millionaire status is only going to be a millionaire still, but just to a small degree. Ah, oh, come the fuck on. Get over it. All right? Get the fuck over it. You didn't stick up for the little guy before, and now you're complaining because uh, your your status might be diminished a bit. Because they're going to be focusing on user engagement. And now's your chance to come out and, and bitch about it. You're still going to have your audience. Make make good content, and people will find your, your shit. Rely on yourself. Because algorithms change. Rules and regulations on YouTube change. Remember that big copyright thing that happened in 2013 that Angry Joe bitched about? In the fall of 2013. Like, this shit happens. You gotta uh, adapt and adjust and do your best. And in terms of, of Felix himself, PewDiePie, complaining about his diminishing uh, views, his content's changed over the past year, too. 
He got big, screaming and yelling and acting like a child. And this isn't me making, taking shots at him. That's what he did while playing video games. Yelling and screaming and making sexual jokes that 10-year-olds liked and 12-year-olds. And that's his main audience. It was, it was pre-teens, pre-pubescent kids. South Park did that episode for a reason, and he agreed to it. He agreed to be a part of that episode showing even Stan and Kyle, you know, the 10-year-olds not understanding why the little kids that are 6 and 7 were watching PewDiePie. Stereotype exists for a reason. That was his audience. That's how I became the biggest YouTuber. So it's hard to go from that to all of a sudden trying to go to more, in his own words, even the interview saying, well, I have a drier humor now that maybe the younger audience doesn't understand. And now he's bitching more about content on YouTube, which he never really did in the past. He's gone into a quote-unquote more mature direction or he wants to. He does shit like joke on Twitter that his Twitter account's really like a recruitment for ISIS or some, some awful shit like that and gets his account unverified. Like, this is all this year. He's done all this stuff. Besides bitch about YouTube and bitch about, well, I don't like the fact that there's drama now on YouTube. But then he changes his mind and does that really stupid video where he attacks other YouTubers, some joking, some not. He's, he, he's changed the tone and style of his videos. And when you do that, you're going to lose audience members. I don't think the 10-year-olds that watched you, you know, play Minecraft videos before want to hear about your exploits joking about having an ISIS Twitter account or talking about drama on YouTube and how it's depressing to you. They're not... Shit's going to happen. 10-year-olds, 12-year-olds, 14-year-olds, again, this is his audience. I'm not taking a shot at his his audience. They, They might be a little bit more fickle when it comes to content. And maybe they found another outlet. Maybe they found another Let's Player, another YouTuber to do the content you used to do the past four years that you no longer did. Or maybe they just fucking grew up and are now in high school and college and have different tastes now. That's a possibility too. To PewDiePie, get over it. You're on top. You're the most famous YouTuber. $15 million, buddy, per year. It's just really uh, tone deaf. Really tone deaf. Maybe, I don't know, maybe, and maybe Google's doing this because maybe YouTube Red isn't setting the world on fire. I read a report that they only have uh, one, 1.5 million uh, paid subscribers. That was like this summer. That's not a lot for uh, something as big as, as YouTube. I thought it'd be a lot bigger than that. 1.5 million YouTube Red subscribers. I was thinking, okay, 5 or 10, now we're getting somewhere. So, apparently, YouTube, they want to make money, and they're not making enough when at last I heard, they weren't even breaking even. Google wasn't breaking even on the YouTube platform. Think about all the bandwidth, all the storage. Holy shit. Tons of money. Unfathomable amounts of money. To have a HD and now 4K viewing platform where anyone can upload any length of video they fucking want. It's insane. So maybe there, maybe YouTube Red didn't work. Maybe these exclusive the exclusive content didn't set the world on fire. You know, PewDiePie's done a couple, he's done, I think, one or two seasons of the Scare PewDiePie show. Maybe it didn't attract the percentage of PewDiePie subscribers they thought it would. You know, 50 million. You, PewDiePie, you have 50 million subscribers. There's only 1.5 overall that even out of the entirety of YouTube that joined YouTube Red. So how many of those were your subscribers? I don't know, but it's not enough. They have to make money. And maybe they'll try this. And maybe a year from now, it'll be a disaster, disaster, and they'll go back to having algorithms that favor, you know, longer-form videos. I don't know. We'll have to wait and see. But it's, it's within their right, again, to change the algorithm. It's shitty if it affects you personally, but, you know, it, you benefited from it for the past five fucking years. So how sad 
can you really, really be about it? You know, a game came out 25 years ago. A football game on the NES. It's still regarded as arguably the greatest football game of all time. And I'm inclined to believe that. We're talking Tecmo Super Bowl. Came out December 1991. It was based upon the 1990-91 NFL season. It had all 28 teams at the time. And it had, what was cool about this game, remember the the original Tecmo Bowl had the, the player's license, but not the player, uh, not, the, not the NFL team license. This had both. It had the NFL Player Association license and the actual team. So you got the logos, you got the names. No more just like generic New York unicorns. No, New York Giants. They're there. And this is a fantastic game. It's five stars according to a certain NES guidebook. <laughs> How to get that out there. Uh, out, of, out of the entire library, about 20 or so five-star games, two sports games, Baseball Stars and Tecmo Super Bowl. What's amazing, though, about this game is that it's grown in popularity more the past 10 years. They they have tournaments in Wisconsin every year. Uh, ESPN, I believe they did a... I, I mean, I, I think it was ESPN. I did see this. Did, I think it was NFL Films or ESPN did a, a, a documentary about it where they visited the one in Wisconsin. I think it's in Madison, Wisconsin. Yes, that's the big one. But the biggest thing to me is that, and I remember downloading this after the Giants uh, kicked the crap out of the New, New England Patriots, yeah, baby, and to, and to beat that uh, perfect record in 2000, uh, what, 2008, <clears throat> 2007, they hacked the game. This is what's amazing to me. Every year, this game is still so popular and so so good that they hack the game's ROM every year to not only make it from 20 to 32 teams, but they also put in the images of the new teams. They have new players. They even update the new player stats every year. And they even put in the new plays for the teams. I mean, this is this is big-time work. So why is this game so good? This game is... If you, if you thought Tecmo Bowl was more of a pure arcade game, which it really is, Tecmo Bowl is more of a perfect blend of simulation and arcade action. It still has that... Tecmo Bowl, poppy, arcade, quick feel to it. But there is more strategy involved. You've gone from four plays to eight, which makes it less of a a roll of the dice to break up the play, which is more realistic. Because not 25% of the time in football, you have a completely demolished play on offense where the defense smothers you. This time, it's a one out of eight chance. So, what is that? About Pat Map, about about, uh, 12.5%, something like that, of breaking up the play totally. But otherwise... If if there's there's usually four offense, uh, four pass plays and four running plays. If you both, if if the offense p- picks a running play and the defense does, they have it somewhat covered, but not entirely covered. More realistic as it would be in real football. If the defense sort of knows what play you're going to run, but not really. The plays are more complex. Uh, there's eleven players on the field instead of nine. So yes, the field is a little smaller. The players are smaller. There is a lot of. You know, there's some sprite flickering going on there. It's noticeable. But hey, you got 22 guys in the field. That's impressive for the NES at the time. You, but you can still can die for players, which is kind of like the arcade sort of mode. If you die for a player and you catch him, he's, he's going to be tackled automatically. Otherwise, you get into that sort of uh, tug of war almost, where it depends upon your 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 uh, your tackle rating versus your breaking tackle rating. 
and I'm butchering what the ratings are. But yeah, every player has ratings still. But they also have uh, they have new ratings like uh, hold, uh, ball handling, agility. Because this game added a lot of features at the original Tecmo Bowl. Which again, a great game still. Four and a half stars Tecmo Bowl. But it sort of completed that game. More plays. Player injuries. You can swap out players. You can change the plays. Swap out the plays. Full season mode. What? That's right. Full season mode with the playoffs. So we're talking taking a game that was really fun on its own merits and making it into just about perfect football game. And we're just talking about the Nintendo version. For some reason, the Super Nintendo one never gets spoken about. But that's the same game, but even better. Because the graphics are better, you don't have the, the sprite flickering, better sounds. But you still have some of the same stuff here. You have cuts, more cutscenes. In, in the original Tecmo Bowl, you had cutscenes just on you know making a field goal or extra point, uh, right? Or not even. You only had it on uh, touchdowns. Yeah. So you had it on touchdowns, halftime. So on Tecmo Super Bowl, you have quarterback sacks, incomplete passes, diving for the uh, diving for passes, and either missing it or 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 getting it, grabbing it in your hand when you go straight up. Or so they added cutscenes in the plays in Tecmo Super Bowl that really don't take you out of the game, and they don't always occur the same way. So you can miss a field goal or make the field goal off the pole. Um, you can you can have like a linebacker jump up to block the pass or not. So it's not a guarantee. Interceptions, really fun stuff uh, that is worked seamlessly into the game. And yeah, players not gonna jump straight up in the air for the ball either defending or not. Oh, incomplete passes. Incomplete passes in the original did happen, but it was like one out of ten times you got an incomplete pass. Now, it's more built into the game where even if a guy's wide open, he can uh, not complete the pass. Or, likewise, better 99% of the time in Tecmo Bowl, if a defender is right in front of the uh, receiver, they would intercept it. Now, it's not guaranteed. Now, it's more likely like in real football, you just break up the play. So, more realism added to the game, uh, but still maintains that arcade action, full season mode, substitutions, uh, injuries, choosing and customizing your own playbook, your eight plays on offense, uh, stats tracked for everyone in the league. Really big thumbs up on that. And you actually had two sequels that aren't talked about that much. So real quick, uh, Tecmo Super Bowl on Super Nintendo Genesis... Uh, fixed many bugs which I didn't know about and added new features. New features. So this came out two years later, 93. Yeah, like I, I spoke about the uh, improved graphics and sound. You had a lot of, uh, like, I remember hearing, like, quarterback sack, or was it Tech Bowl 3, anyway. Um, log- team logos in the end zones. User control touchbacks. Ah, that's the one. So you can decide when you caught it whether you want to, whether you want to do a touchback when you receive the ball in the end zone on a kickoff. The ability to control a player to attempt a punt block. Ah. Uh, you can change the, change the playbook during games. That's right. On the NES version, you can't change it during the game. You have to wait till you're out of the game to do that. The running back dive over the, the pile option. <laughs> That's right. That was a cool play. Three weather conditions. Sunny, rain, and snow, uh, which occurs randomly in season mode. And then you can have accelerated 15 and 10-minute quarters uh, used for exhibition, ex- exhibition and Pro Bowl games during the season. You can't, you can't affect that. And then there's also you can do three consecutive seasons. So you can have like a you can have like a a, uh, a dynasty. So no one really talks about two and three. 
And I love 3. To me, 3 is even better than the original. But 2 came out special edition uh, in 94. It was a limited edition, people. Which I think it was because there was bugs that they... I think they didn't do a... They, they fixed some of the bugs and changed a few things. Technical Super Bowl 2 and 3 final edition are very close to being the same game. Uh, according to uh, Wikipedia, in 95... Uh, February 95, issue Nintendo Power mentioned that they only had 15,000 units shipped to North America. So it went from strict 2D to isometric. I still think it's excellent. And then Tecmo Super Bowl 3 came out a year later, and that sort of solidified and finalized that sort of series of games, where, real quick, uh, basically Tecmo Super Bowl 2 and 3 kept pretty much all the features from Tecmo Super Bowl, but you can create your own players, which is awesome. Um, remember there being spin moves, and you can jump over tackles. Things like that were added. Really finished the polish on the game. Um, onside kicks. I cannot remember if the Super Nintendo Tecmo Super Bowl had onside kicks or not. Oh, oh yeah, they all had them. They had them, but not as a set play. Um, you just had to do very a very light power on the kick, and it wasn't like an automatic onside kick. So yeah, Tecmo Super Bowl, awesome game. 25 years old. After that, though, with the mobile version and, and shitty PlayStation versions, screw it. Uh, but by the way, look out for those uh, Bo Jackson, Bo Jackson uh, Tecmo Super Bowl commercials for like the was it for Kia cars, really really cool. So it's back in the limelight. Good on Tecmo for for being out there. And there's also the commercial with Brian Bosworth, which is funny as hell because Bo Jackson, you know, he was a god in Tecmo Bowl. He was also a god in Tecmo Super Bowl, as was Lawrence Taylor on defense in both games. So uh, Tecmo Super Bowl, even even if you do not like sports games, you have to like Tecmo Bowl. Because it's, it's like watch, it's like a lot, liking NBA Jam if you, if you don't like uh, basketball or sports games. It's just a fun, quick experience. You don't have to know everything about football to get and understand even the basic strategy and have a fun time, uh, either against a computer in a season or against an asshole friend named Kevin who looks at your controller while you're choosing the plays. All right, real quick, <laughs> this is brought to my attention about the NES Classic Edition. We're still in a weird sort of place with the NES Classic Edition, where you still have scalpers. And you still have, unfortunately, announcements of, oh, this website's going to have a limited stock today, or this site will, or this site will. So, I saw, like, uh, what, Dell was on the like, on the 5th or so. Dell had their stock, which quickly sold out. Urban Outfitters had theirs. I, I heard that Bed Bath Beyond was going to get some stock in at their stores. So, I'm going to search on Craigslist right now for the NES Classic Edition. No, not for whores. Not for whores. The NES Classic Edition. Um, it's funny when you have them saying sold out everywhere. Still dozens listed. Dozens listed. But the good news is that a lot more of these are under $200 now. I see it 190 with the case. I see 180 Let's see. One one sixty. You're gonna get to that nice sweet spot coming, I think, very soon in the next week or two. Where the scalpers are gonna get nervous because more stocks gonna show up in stores, and they're gonna be forced to take a slightly bigger hit than they would have won on their wallet. Not saying it's gonna happen tomorrow. Hey, I see one right now I can buy for hundred forty. That's an improvement because a day or two ago the cheapest one was one sixty five, one seventy. And now it's 140. Huh? Couple for 180. So you can get them for under 200. 
easily. So hold out hope. I still think by a week or two before Christmas, these are going to be not flooded, but more regularly available. Nintendo, they're not total idiots. They realize that this is an impulse buy at $60. They're going to get these into stores. And if not, after Christmas, you'll get one. Don't give in to the scalpers. I will repeat that again. Do not give in to scalpers. For their part, customers on Amazon who are low-rating this, mainly because they hate scalpers, are reviewing this and telling people not to give in to scalpers. Right now, there's 181 available just on Amazon for $220 that you can get brand new. I'll look on eBay in a second. That doesn't include all the local ones. So, be patient. Look out. Ooh, yeah, they're going they're going down in price a little bit. R- really, they're scalping the freaking uh, deluxe carrying case. Are you kidding me? They're scalping that thing. Why would you scalp that? I I'm, I gladly ordered mine for twenty bucks. I'm still waiting. I don't know why you scalp that. Let's see. Uh, really, really quick. Oh, is it trending down already? Remember when they guaranteed that price of two hundred twenty six dollars last podcast? Trending at two oh five now. It's gone down twenty dollars in two weeks. All right. And that's going to continue to go down. Open auction ended at 192, December 6th. Buy it now for 200. Uh, 198, 194 open auction. 200, 170, 160, 188 open auction. 204, 194, 195, 192, 194. Some are still going over 200, but the vast majority are now between the 180 and 200 range. 177 with 60 bids. I think people are starting to smarten up. One went for $136 open auction, $179. This is is trending down, not up, people. Be patient. Do not give in. They have to sell it. They they need the money more than you need this freaking piece of hardware. That's for damn sure. Little Johnny and little Susie can wait. So on Amazon, no, people are fighting back with a good fight and telling people don't give in to the scalpers. So the top... The top rated customer review is five stars, but it says, wait it out and don't fall into the holiday scam. It is ridiculous to pay more than than $60 for this. Let these jackholes who got them early just to sell them at four times retail choke on them. Can't stand people that take advantage of others during the holidays. Shame on Nintendo for not releasing more units. It's not like they wouldn't sell. 2,949 people thought that was helpful, and there's 55 comments. Uh, people complaining that there's people who are doing that. They don't release more because this is Nintendo's business, business practice. Blah, 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 blah. They're killer some releases. Some people are saying, well, it's our right, right to do that. So, and the good news is that this is a top top 1,000 reviewer on Amazon. So that's going to be what most, first and foremost, most people see on the NES Classic, Classic Edition Amazon page. Some are saying, don't fall for the holiday scam. Next comment, it's a good lesson in patience for your kids. Don't even think about spending more than $60 for this. Great if you can find one. Don't pay more than $60 and get a controller extension. Great blast to the past. Not worth a penny more than $60. Tons of fun, just like I remember. Uh, Remember to set your TV in game mode for a lag-free experience. Pat here, it'll never be totally lag-free, but wait for my full review on that. Get a long HDMI cable instead of a controller extension. Which, which has to do more with the lag, because there's input lag, I think, with the longer cables, which could be why it was shorter. Um, yeah. So, it's funny that these are on here. Someone said no power supplied by Nintendo, though? Huh? Well, everyone, you can get a USB port, you know. 
the US version did come with a wall uh, adapter anyway. So so that was a that was a weird review. So yeah, everyone for the most part is saying remember that the scalpers have to sell to you. Be patient. Scalpers suck dick. <laughs> That's basically now there's sixty eight percent one star reviews on Amazon though. Which you know is unfortunate because honestly, if I had to review this right now, give it a star rating, I would give it probably four out of five stars. If I had it, if you if you pin me down and say how many stars would you give this, I I would give it four, over out of five. Uh, da da. Uh, and then, so someone said eighties babies raging, talking about the scalping, saying I blame Nintendo. You guys let us down big time, and there's even a picture of the daughter who was let down by it. So I won't wade into the comments that much more about this, but my quick suggestion to you is that uh, before I do my full review, which I will as as a certain moniker, Pathinius Punk. Is that, yeah, get, get, spend six bucks and get like a 20 foot HDMI cable. Do not get the controller extension because that will probably have input lag uh, on top of the lag from the TV, which will make some of the games even more unplayable. Because right now, the only unplayable game is going to be Mike Tyson's Punch Out, or excuse me, Punch Out, especially when you get, when you get to later, later characters, and especially Mr. Dream, who is not beatable, at least on my LED TV. With game mode on, not you cannot dodge the punches. It just you just can't, at least by at least by actual reflexes. So there you have it. Be patient, folks. Scour your Craigslist ads and just lowball the fuck out of them. You should just even if you don't want it, even if you don't want it, lowball them to get them into the mentality. Hey, you got to sell these or else you're going to be stuck with these for thirty days. You know. So I'll give you I'll give you sixty four dollars for it. I'll pay the tax for you, buddy. Sixty seven fifty. You get a dollar tip. Whatever works. Thank God for Capcom, right? Doing the right thing for a change. And saying that we're going to come out with our... You know, remember those franchises you liked? Remember that Mega Man guy? Ghosts and Goblins, 1942. Remember those properties we haven't done shit with for five, six years? Well, we might start to do that again. And it took the announcement of Marvel vs. Capcom Infinite in order to get us to that point. Which is kind of sad, but at least it's fortunate that Capcom realizes, hey, maybe we shouldn't pull a total Konami and actually, you know, actually come out with games that our fans like. So, Marvel vs. Capcom goes back to like 99. Marvel vs. Capcom 3 was a huge success and that already came out like five, six years ago? Wow. I remember going over Ian's house and watching the gameplay and being like, oh, I'm officially old, I don't like this. So, uh, they've already come out with a uh, a little gameplay trailer has had a uh, what's, what's her name, Morgan was it Morgan Morgan, from from Dark Darkstalkers, which again it's a franchise that I don't think has been has been a game in forever. Uh, Ryu was in there, Mega Man X was there as well. Um, they announced it, so they're gonna have. This is in the press release. Beyond appealing to genre and series fans, the game is, is targeting a diverse audience and looks to bring in casual players who are fans of Marvel movies, comic books, television shows. As such, starting with a robust cinematic story mode, the game will feature a variety of exciting and accessible single-player content, as well as rich multiplayer modes, including online battles. Hopefully, they don't pull Street Fighter V and have there not be a story mode when it ships. Anyway, in addition to regular major title releases each fiscal year, this is really for stockholders. This press release, Capcom is currently focused on reviving series that have not had new entries recently. Or otherwise dormant IP, beginning with Marvel vs. Capcom Infinite, a return for this series following a five-year hiatus. 
Capcom looks to enhance its corporate value, I love the corporate speak, even further by utilizing its library of rich content. Contents. So, you know, we're talking, you know, come on, give us give us a new shooter series. Give us like a 1948. Give us a new Mega Man game, for God's sake. You canceled 17 of them. You know, people want this. People want Capcom games. What's interesting though about Marvel's Capcom Infinite, I have a huge amount more to say about this, is that, wow, a lot happens in five years, huh? Due to the, let's just say, acrimony between Marvel and uh, 20th Century Fox, who still have the right for the X-Men characters and Fantastic Four for film, all the rest are back at Marvel, I don't think you're going to see X-Men characters in Marvel vs. Capcom Infinite. I don't think you're going to see them. So, those fan favorites like Wolverine, Magneto, uh, even Deadpool, who's blown up the past five, six years and had a very good movie that came out last year and a sequel coming out, uh, and, excuse me, came out earlier this year already. What is it? It's going to come out in 2018, the next one? If they start filming early next year? I don't think they're going to be in Marvel vs. Capcom Infinite. Marvel, you can say, is being petty. But just like canceling the Fantastic Four comic book and like keeping, like I remember walking into a Target, seeing a Marvel shirt, Marvel comic shirt, and not seeing any of the Fantastic Four. And I don't even think either either just Wolverine was on that or he wasn't. But definitely the rest of the X-Men weren't. So they're really putting the, the, putting the screws, uh, twisting the screws on uh, 20th Century Fox. They want all those property backs. They want to force them. They want to make. They want to devalue that X Men property and those characters so much so that they come crawling back. <laughs> I mean, hey, they can do that. They can put the pressure on them. No more toys. No more comics if they want to. And that TV show, remember? And then that they're they're trying to work out that deal for that TV show. And the word was that they would only do that TV show that that uh, that uh, X Men Mutant TV show if they get if they gave the rights back to. Uh, Marvel Studios to do a Fantastic Four. Hopefully that happened because that last Fantastic Four movie was dreadful from all the reviews. So, who knows? Maybe we'll see a new uh, Animusha game, huh? Well, throw out some Capcom properties that have there has been a game in forever. I think I brought up Dark Darkstalkers already. Well, the big one to me is uh, obviously Mega Man. That's the one that. Uh, Dino Crisis? You want to see a Dino Crisis game? No? You don't? Okay, well, come on. I'm just... I'm just, <laughs> I'm just thinking here. Who was, in, who was in Marvel versus Capcom 3? Versus Capcom 3 roster. I want to see who was in there that they could do a game for. That's not Street Fighter related. Chris Redfield. Okay, well, that's the one thing Capcom is still going to be doing you know, forever. They're going to be doing Resident Evil movies. They'll be doing that. Uh, Beautiful Joe? Why not? Why not a Beautiful Joe game? Tron Bon? Uh, I don't know if they're going to do that. Ah, how about a Final Fight game? Huh? Huh? Now we're talking. Not as strong as I, I first looked at the... <laughs> I'm looking at these and like, yeah, three are from... Three characters... From uh, Resident Evil, Beautiful Joe, Arthur, 
and then uh, a bunch from Street Fighter. <laughs> but yeah, let's get a final fight game. I'm in. I'm down. Give me back Guy, Hagger, and Cody. Let's do this. Let's do it. All right, it's time for uh, an Indiegogo topic. This is the Retro Engine Sigma. And holy shit, it's raised a ton of money. 1,200 backers, based out of Santa Monica. 89,000 raised with a month left. So what the hell is this? The Retro Engine Sigma is a media player, and it's an emulation, basically, machine. It's, it's not It's not a Raspberry Pi, per se, but it's a Raspberry Pi in essence. It's it's actually really cute. It's uh it's shaped like a it's a mini Sega Genesis or Mega Drive that's silver. Okay? On the front you have what looks like uh a player one and player two. Those buttons are ports. There's definitely a couple of uh there's 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 an HDMI out port, there's a power out port, there's a there's a mini USB out, which looks like the one uh, looks like the one that you see with like droid phones, you know that sort of a trapezoidal sort of shape. Um, yeah, there's two front buttons that you can customize how you want, and then there's two USB ports for your controllers. Uh, it says that it accepts modern retro, which technically it can. I mean, hell, you can get you can get a Nintendo USB adapter, uh, Genesis, uh, P- PlayStation Two. Or hell, you can get a wired... If you can find those wired Xbox uh, 360 controllers, those are actually really good controllers uh, because uh, uh, they'll work in Windows or a Windows operating system and probably this, and you'll have the analogs and you'll have all the buttons and everything. You're ready to go. I'm glad I have my couple of them. I never use them. There's an expansion port so that you can get more uh, for the for the mini USB expansion port so you can get a, get a hub and put it in there. Uh, Bluetooth expandable. And uh, it has built-in... Wi-Fi, so you can communicate with your home network. And you can also control games with your smartphone, which I don't know who the hell would do that, because using a control pad on your on your a touchpad stinks. They're going to offer a Bluetooth dongle on the expansion port, so you can use like a PlayStation Three controller. Okay, and they're going to have an AC adapter. All right, I'm I'm down so far. Right, sixteen or thirty-two gigs uh, built in. Right. Uh, via the, I guess via the memory card, right? So, what exactly is this though? Well, like a Raspberry Pi, which usually you have um, a bunch of emulators off of a menu to access the emulators, this is going to be the same thing. So they're not including the ROMs here though. That's important. And like other past Kickstarter we spoke about, they're not going to be able to have it built in that you can search and download the ROMs. So in terms of legality sense, I think they're fine here. I think they're fine. So it's going to come with uh, it's going to come with some emulators here. It's going to come with those emulators that are um, that are able to be shipped with online, that are free source. So that's the good news. Uh, the signal will ship with 15 pre-installed branded games that are playable out of the box. They'll probably—I I don't know which ones they get the rights to. There, there's pictures here. These probably they did not probably did not get the rights to Doom, but who knows? Unless it's a Doom shareware. Uh, looks like a picture of uh, Mario Tennis for Virtual Boy. I can guarantee you that Nintendo did not get the rights to that. And there's a picture of looks like R-Type 
Sonic, Sonic will give uh, Sega will give away their games for for a, a cup of coffee. Uh, the license amount, so that could be true. Then they have uh, looks like uh, Outrun. So uh, our plug and play installer will give you the choice to download, configure, and install additional emulators from public sources and repositories controlled by your smartphone or tablet. That's a pretty cool idea. This is as easy as selecting the option during the initial setup of the system and will allow you to play thousands of additional ROMs, asterisks, asterisks, that can be easily installed onto the system with a web browser or by using the micro SD adapter, which I guess will be 1632 gigs, compatible with what that little symbol was before. Your smartphone will, will also be usable as a keyboard and even as an additional game controller. See, that's, that appeals to me more, using it as a keyboard. That's a cool idea. That's really cool. The following gaming systems can be enabled. Uh, Amstrad, which is a computer at Europe that no one in the U.S. had. Atari 2600, 5700. Uh, Atari ST, Game Boy, Game Boy Advance, Game Boy Color, Game Gear, Lynx, uh, a MAME, which is the multi-arcade machine emulator, MSX, Nintendo 64, NES, Neo Geo, Neo Geo Pocket for Ian, Neo Geo Pocket Color for Ian, PC Engine, Commodore 64, PlayStation, SG-1000, Super Nintendo, 32X, Sega CD, Genesis, Master System, Vectrex, and the good old Timex Sinclair. So, do I think this is a good idea from the start? Well, first off, let's look at the asterisks and what they say by that, about warning people. Um, a ROM is a digital copy of an individual game program that was originally running on arcade machines, consoles, or older home computers. A ROM can normally be run on the system it was originally designed for. ROM usage. If you decide to install the additional emulator pack to enable the system to run game backups from older systems, the legality of using such ROMs depends on your country's laws and additional circumstances, blah, 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 blah. Basically, that's them covering your ass saying, we're not going to give you the ROMs to put on the system or make it easy for you to find them out of the menu, but you can download them yourself, put them on, which is what everyone's going to be fucking doing when they get this machine. So this is on Indiegogo, probably because they're a little bit more laissez-faire when it comes to this stuff. Again, I think this uh, this is totally legal, this product. Whether or not the quality stands up, I don't know. Built-in 4K support. Uh, media player built-in. A lot of these Raspberry uh, Pi types of systems have these built-in. Tech specs. Uh, so again, it's not a Raspberry Fire, it's, uh, uh, Pi. Uh, it's going to have 512 meg DDR3 RAM. A Mali 400 MP2 GPU. Four times Cortex A7 up to 1.2 gigahertz, which I'm assuming is going to be fast enough to run all the emulators. Probably is. Built-in Wi-Fi, micro SD card of 16 or 32 gigs, compatible with it. Power supply, uh, status LED, HDMI, uh, four and a, it's basically the size of any class edition, four and a quarter inches almost, or four and a third by three and a third inches. So there you go. They're offering a bunch of different. Uh, a bunch of different packages. The early bird was only 49 bucks, which actually that was a really good price, which included a 16 gig card, a PS2 style USB controller, HDMI cable, and a, looks like a dongle of some sort. Then they have a $69 package, which has a USB six button Genesis controller, as well as everything else that came with it before. 32 gig card. Uh, da, 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 da. And it goes from there, other types of packages. The early bird's already gone. They have the Speedy Backer 32 gig deluxe set right now. That's a featured one. Retro controller, which is the Genesis controller. 32, pre-installed 32 gig micro SD. So, what do you mean pre-installed? Oh, it's like glued inside. Anyway. So, 
I'm I'm I just I I see why these appeal to other people. I just aren't into these myself personally. I I we were gifted Eden and I uh, a Raspberry Pi before, and while we thought it was cool, the fact that that it was kind of hard to configure the menu. Uh, to get the different, to get it to display correctly on a TV, it was like stretch wise for when it shouldn't be. It was uh, tough as balls to find out how to uh, change out the uh, the button, uh, at least on this setup. Maybe this is a better system, better software. I don't know, but it's going to be funded. It's at eighty nine thousand twelve hundred twenty seven backers. The goal is only twenty thousand. There's a month left still. Check it out. Maybe I'll look into this in the future. For 60 bucks, maybe it's a good deal. You can buy a t- 10 of them for $690 if you want the arcade lounge set to put them into your, your personal arcade. There you go. There you have it. Now check it out. These are all the rage. Uh, this is legal. I don't care. Hopefully the, the, the free source, you know, the, our emulators that are, are included are good. And there you go. Real quick, I've been getting, I've been getting messages. <laughs> this is becoming like the uh, the expose podcast, a completely unnecessary expose podcast. There's a chain that was brought to my attention on Facebook. I'm not sure if he wants me to say his name or not. He wanted me to, uh, to bring to everyone's attention a chain called Second and Charles. So Second and Charles is a used media store. They do books, they do music, they do games. I guess sorting like a uh, like a, I don't know what's 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 another equivalent to these. These are these are trying to pop up all over though. Like Game Exchange does music and, and movies as well. But this does books. These are located... Let's see where these are located. Looks like there's about 30 or so locations. Eastern Seaboard. Uh, Alabama, Colorado. Oh, and also the Midwest and out west. Colorado, Delaware, Florida, Georgia, Illinois, Louisiana, Maryland, Michigan, North Carolina, Ohio, Pennsylvania, South Carolina, Texas, and Virginia. South uh, Eastern Seaboard, not non-Northeast, and Midwest, and, and a little bit of South. So, I said that already, Pat. said South twice. So anyway, so you trade in your games and media. Uh, after you drop off your stuff, we'll give you a claim ticket. Be sure and hold on to that little guy, because that's how you get your money credit later. You can browse the stacks while you're looking at your stuff. You should look at our stuff. We've got used books, CDs, DVDs, video games, vinyl records, e-readers, and a whole lot more. Keep your eyes peeled for your claim number on one of our screens. When it appears, head on back to the buyback counter. Cool idea. You can shop instead of just waiting. The moment of truth. Based on the condition of your stuff and current store inventory, one of two things will happen. We'll offer you the option of cash or store credit, or we'll tell you to get the hell out because your stuff sucks. No, we'll return your items to you. If number if number two happens, please don't feel bad. It's nothing personal. It's not you. It's us. Okay. So someone on Facebook got in touch with me. And want them to let me know that they had a change in policy recently, and it's and it's detrimental to sort of the retro game community, and it pertains to how GameStop's policy of, of destroying products. Well, this could be a policy, unfortunately, we're, we're going to see play out as well. So this is uh, our sort of back and forth. Pat, messaging you on here because I don't know how to email you. Well, you recently talked about how GameStop was destroying items. There's a company out here called Second and Charles that you may not know about. It's owned by Books a million and takes in all kinds of retro items from albums to comics, games, etc. They have a buyback counter that typically offers 20% value, 5% cash. Holy shit, that low? 20% value, which is extremely low. 5% cash, which is fucking criminal, for different items. They use 
VGPC, which is price charting eBay and their own store system to get these prices. They recently offered $8 for a Castlevania 4. Holy God, if it gives you any idea of how fucking classy they are. He's being facetious. Items that they can't take, for whatever reason, are given back to the owner. If the owner has an item that they no longer want but they can't accept, then the item goes to the free bin. That this bin is this bin is designated for various items and is out front of the store where people can take items that simply aren't wanted. So if you come up with a old Atari twenty six hundred game that they can't sell or don't want, they have a bin there that you can throw it into that at least some good might come of it. For the past two years, myself and many collectors have picked up tons of games and systems in the free bin. For many S's and SNES systems to various games, typically systems are in that bin because they quote unquote won't work or are too dirty. Five minutes of love. Uh, and myself, wait, he worded that wrong. Five minutes of love and me and several others have brought systems back to life. Okay, I reworded that a little bit <laughs> more straightforward. This past weekend, I came in after noticing a decline in games and systems in that free bin and saw several th- 360 systems, an NES, and a heavy 6 or 2600 system ready to go. I asked, um, I asked da, 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 if I could take them, and they said no. So they weren't in the bin yet. This is Pat. They weren't in the bin yet. I guess that they were ready to go in there. I asked why. They said because all unaccepted gaming systems are now being destroyed. Yes. In case the caps didn't translate, they're destroying all gaming systems when they're to go to the free bin. The company has numerous locations and across the U.S. are now intentionally reducing items from the public. Woo. Thanks again, Ian. I hope you're feeling better. Eat a bag of dicks. Smiley face. I asked him what location. He said this was Athens, Georgia. Um, I asked him if this was nationwide company policy as far as he knew. He said, it's my understanding. It's corporate mandate. I got confirmation last night. I asked if they don't have training to clean systems games. And I asked him where he got the confirmation from. He said a store manager told him it was this now the corporate mandate about throwing away systems. Uh, and I'm guessing games. But he's definitely said the systems here, which is bad enough. Uh, he says, and if they're dirty, they won't take them either. Oh, it includes games, I asked. I said, I asked, what qualifies as an unacceptable game? Meaning they can't take them in. They can take them in but cannot sell. He said, dirty labels, pins with light corrosion, Things to labels, basic things. They will take something that will need a basic wipe off, but if it requires more than a minute or two of time, then it's refused or trashed. Okay. So we have a more than regional used media store that deals in video games that used to have a free bin of games and systems that they couldn't either sell themselves or didn't want to deal with because they were dirty, didn't want to use a freaking rubbing alcohol and cute to bring back to life, whichever. Or they think look dirty from the outset. That they give only 20% trade credit, 5% cash for. They, at least, according to this person, I've never been to a second in Charles, you can tell me in the comments how on target this guy's, they at least had a free bin to give back out to people so they wouldn't throw it out. But now he's telling me it's a corporate mandate to toss these systems they don't think don't work or can't sell, they think they can't sell it on television, throw it out. Don't even give it away to someone. Or don't even give it to someone to give to a fucking Goodwill. Or put on eBay or to give away to, or sell at a flea market. Some good comes from it. Or if a game looks a little bit too dirty, the label or even the pins, 
they'll try to clean it, but if, if it's too if it's too busy or if, if it's like, oh, well, screw it, just throw it in, throw it away. That's unfucking acceptable, if that's true. So I would not tell you to go bother the corporate second in Charles, but maybe email them or contact your local store and ask if that's true. They have a customer service email number. There's a media media inquiry. My journalist, should I call him? I can ask about if this is true. If I can do my file follow up. <laughs> I'm a podcast podcaster. I'm a coster. <laughs> I'm a podcaster. Damn it! I don't have time for this. This journalism and following up with shit. I'll take his word from it. Uh, from Athens, Georgia. I'll take uh, I'll take uh, James's word for it. Won't say his last name. He's semi-anonymous. That they are, unfortunately, Second and Charles, are now no longer giving back to the public shit they can't sell or things broken. They're just they're just going to chuck it. Go to your local store, lodge a complaint. If you want to get in touch with corporate, feel free to do that. And saying, okay, be nice. Don't don't harass. I'll be like, hey, listen, I disagree with this policy. It'd be better for you, for your reputation, and you'll help preserve items for the public. For those less fortunate, perhaps even give it away to a Salvation Army or a Goodwill versus throwing it into the fucking garbage. That's no good. No one wins in that scenario. Okay, this was a weird topic that I saw come up. I wish Ian was here. We can joke about this more. So, apparently, the Walking Dead producers are working on adaptations of Altered Beast and Streets of Rage for either TV or movies or for digital content. And then more Sega properties are bound for film and TV. The executive producers behind The Walking Dead and the AMC spinoffs have partnered with Sega's film and television production arm to develop filmed entertainment adaptations of Streets and Rage and Altered Beast. This is according to the production house uh, Stories International. They will work with production company Circle of Confusion, who did Fear the Walking Dead, uh, Powers and Outcasts on the adaptation. Okay, let's back up. So, we have some very popular Walking Dead shows based on a popular comic book. Makes sense to do that, and it's one of the biggest TV shows out there the past, what, six years, seven years. In season season seven right now, which I think is kind of dragging, but that's a whole other topic that I won't get into. Do you honestly think, in your heart of hearts, this is, has nothing to do with me. I'm not a Sega hater. I owned the Master System as a kid. I like the Sega Genesis. But let's be fucking real. Do you honestly see an Altered Beast television show, let alone a movie, being made? A property based upon a more esoteric title that there hasn't been an it hasn't been in the public eye in tw- over 25 years. A game that wasn't popular enough to be kept as a packing game for, you know, more than a year, year and a, year, more than a year and a half. And now this is going to be a television show or movie. Come on. Come on. Really? Seriously? Come on. Will it be as short as the Genesis game? It'll be like a 20 minute episode. That's the game. It's 20 minutes long. <laughs> I mean, it's a cool concept to have a movie. Or you transform, you rise from your grave. You get all steroid muscle, muscle-y, 
and then you turn into like a bear or a wolf or like a dragon. That hell, that's a really cool idea. Is it a cool enough idea to get tens of millions of dollars though <laughs> to create a major motion picture or even you know five million bucks to make a TV show? Since so t- you know television shows don't cost as much. Which always perplexed me because television shows are like 13 hours of content, 20 hours versus a movie, which is two. But whatever. I don't know. I don't know what goes into making uh, TV shows. So they even said, uh, we're looking forward to seeing the Centurion from Ultra Beast rise from the grave and the Streets of Rage heroes, Adam, Elix, and Blaze fight to take their city back on a screen near you. All right. I'm not going to hold my breath there. What's more insane, though, is that they first. Sega and Stories International, the production company here, um, they announced plans to adapt more than Sega, more than forty Sega properties into either feature films, television shows, and digital series back in 2014. I think me and Ian sp- spoke about that on the podcast briefly. I think, including Golden Axe, Crazy Taxi, and Virtua Fighter, because I really see a Virtua Fighter TV show happening in the near future, or Crazy Taxi feature film. Or a Golden Axe film. Right. I tell you what, though. I actually do see, out of all these properties, a Shinobi movie could be pretty cool. Generic, uh, made-for-TV or made-for-Hulu or Netflix Shinobi movie or even series. I'm actually on board with that. Give me your you know American Ninja type of thing going on. Remember the American Ninja movies of Michael Dudikoff? Yeah, that sort of cheesy style. Well, with Shinobi throwing stars and using his ninja powers and having a Spider-Man lookalike show up that he beats in the first level of the game. I, I totally see that happening. Even throwing like a third, uh, first-person ninja-throwing star scene to sort of be an homage to the bonus rounds of the arcade game. I actually do see that. Shinobi. I will, I will see a Shinobi series or movie well before... Uh, Crazy Taxi, Golden Axe, Virtual Fighter, Streets of Rage, or freaking Altered Beast. Has there been an Altered Beast game in the past 10 years? Has there been one? I'm going to look it up myself. Altered Beast. Uh, 88 in the arcades, 89 in the Genesis, home versions. The game, okay, it was on the 3DS, digital download. Okay? That's it. Legacy. Uh, was released in 2005, uh, PlayStation 2 title in 2005 in Japan, and it was Ultra Beast in Europe, well, it wasn't even in the U.S. Uh, there was a 2002 sequel for Game Boy Advance. Wow, okay, yeah, I, yeah. I think you can go even Shinobi, hell, you can go fucking OutRun if you want to go and, and, and adapt a property that at least people in the mainstream have might have heard of versus Ultra Beast. Wow. How about that Guardians of the Galaxy 2 t- uh, teaser trailer, huh? As I'm running out of steam on <laughs> this podcast. <laughs> Baby Groot's fucking adorable. Oh my god, is he cute. You know it's cheap to go for a kitty character in a movie or a baby character, but... Come on. Killer Groot as a baby? This, that, that alone is going to guarantee that Guardians of the Galaxy 2 is, is going to make a jillion dollars in 2017. What does it come out in, like, uh, was it April or May? It's going to have a cool soundtrack again, 70s and 80s music. Uh, Sweets, Fox on the Run, a a song that I don't think I've heard. Either I never heard it or it's been 10 years since when I heard it on the trail. I'm like, wow, have I heard that before? Uh, It's it's Sweets 
a Fox on the Run trailer. Uh, it's, it's a trailer music. And Sweet uh, did a few more uh, songs you might have heard of, including That song, you've heard that freaking 70s trippy-ass song, glam rock song. But more importantly, um, they did Ballroom Blitz. You've all heard of Ballroom Blitz. So it's a it's a, uh, was it? a British glam rock band. So they're getting those more, not r- obscure songs, but more esoteric songs for the soundtrack to probably get back. And you're going to have, you know, Groot, uh, little baby Groot, because he, you know, because he, he had to be regrowing at the end of the first one. Rocket Raccoon. Uh, you're going to have Star-Lord, Gamora, and Drax the Destroyer, played by Dave Bautista, who does a fantastic job. The deadpan sort of awkward humor uh, is played to perfection. At the end of the trailer, there's a really nice moment with Chris Pratt that Drax is yelling at, uh, he's laughing at him for, for I guess, a psychic revealing Star-Lord's sexual desire for Gamora. And uh, really surprised that Bautista is not the weak link in the in that film. There really wasn't a weak link among the team. If you want to say Gamora, because it's just a typical sort of female stoic bad badass character, that personality you can hopefully expand upon in the sequel a little bit more. But Michael Rooker's back. His character's back. Um, I think we're gonna get uh, some of the original characters back. Hopefully, Glenn Close comes back. Uh, John C. Riley was great in the original, and that was a, a surprise hit of 2014. Remember, remember the first Guardians of the Galaxy. You're like, well, this is the first Marvel films failure coming up. People were like guaranteeing that this C-lister comic book or C-grade comic book space fantasy adventure movie was just going to fail horribly, and it comes out in, in what was it came out in like August? No real competition for it in 2014. Really awesome trailers. That people are like, whoa, this is interesting. They're doing something with the music here. You know, 70s, uh, early 80s pop music going on here. Uh, unique sort of a comedy action space mix that we haven't seen in a movie in quite a while. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm on board. Why not? And it was hugely successful. Like, shockingly, and they, you know, greenlit the sequel. It was in the fucking. Uh, it was like a James Bond thing. It said the Guardians of the Galaxy will return. And this is going to build up to the uh, uh, Avengers uh, 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 Infinite War, uh, Part 1 and Part 2. When was that, 2018? Uh, Avengers Infinite Infinity War, uh, Part 1. And they're building in with the... Marvel's like, they're like, with Disney now, they're even, even scarier than ever. You have, you know, Guardians of the Galaxy and uh, this Marvel versus Capcom Infinite building in with with the Infinity Wars. You have Captain Marvel, uh, who was featured heavily in the in the released uh, gameplay trailer for Marvel versus Capcom Infinite. And there's going to be a Captain Marvel movie coming out, and she's going to be heavily involved in Infinity War. So they got they're firing all all, all cylinders here. Yeah, 2018 for Inf- Infinity War Part One and Part Two a year later. Uh, there you go. And that's going to have, like, you know, 50 fucking characters in it. All the Avengers, all the Guards of the Galaxy are going to be in that. Uh, Captain Marvel will show up in that. You know, maybe you'll see the Marvel uh, TV stars, but I doubt it. But it would be nice to have uh, Daredevil show up even for a scene or two with Jessica Jones and the Punisher and uh, Luke Cage and Iron Fist. Oh, boy, am I excited for Iron Fist. So is Ian. So I'm going way off topic here. But, yeah, I was very impressed by that Guardians of the Galaxy. Uh, two trailer. 
And go check out Sweet's uh, video, Trippy 70s video for uh, Fox on the Run. Really good song. Perfect tone. That whimsical sort of rocking out tone of Guardians of the Galaxy. <laughs> what am I, marketing for Marvel now? I got a paycheck coming with uh, Mickey on it for, for helping promote a movie that needs no promotion from me. I'll be jealous when Andre Meadows, uh, Black Nerd, <laughs> gets a freaking red carpet treatment like he did for freaking uh, Captain America Civil War. They'll probably get it again. <laughs> They'll probably get it again for uh, for that one, too. Oh, a couple of Q&A questions. Or am I too fucking tired for it? God, I've been re- uh, recording for a while now. Long, long while. Oh, this is from at Ray Peterson 24. What is the most outlandish claim made against you as a YouTuber or video game educator? Woo! The most outlandish claim made against me is probably that I hate all my fans. Which is weird because I think if you hate your fans, it will be hard to build up a fan base at all. Unless you have just a legion of masochistic fans that want to be abused. You know what I mean? It's, it's really a weird thing to say that. Or maybe I just hate a bunch of my fans or I don't respect them. And, and people say that because they think because there's some people that think because they follow you online or they watch your videos or hell, maybe they bought one of my DVDs in 2013. That gives them the right to treat you like shit. I've had people actually come at me on Facebook or Twitter. And again, these people that befriend me on Twitter or Facebook or follow me there. That'll say something really shitty. And maybe some things are lost in translation. I understand that. But then even given a chance after I say, hey, it's kind of shitty you said that to them. Or it's shitty, it's shitty that you said it to me. They'll say, well, I'm just your fan. Why are you taking it like that? Because you follow me online or watch my videos or watch the podcast doesn't mean you know me or give you the right to treat me the way you have. I've even seen the, the nicest YouTubers be treated like crap by weird fans at person where they're very upset. So even the nicest YouTubers, 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 <laughs> that's all the website, YouTuber.com. Even the nicest YouTubers, ones that are nicer than asshole Pat have shit dick fans in quotes that give them awful grief when they shouldn't, most likely. And yes, there are YouTubers, and you, you, and you do have the right to call me on shit. I'm not saying you should never criticize me or other YouTubers. You have you have the freedom to do that. But there's a way of doing it nicely, and there's a way of being a fucking asshole. There's constructive criticism, and then just either taking things too far, or being too impersonal, or, you know, using slurs, or just calling me a, a, a gigantic piece of shit or an asshole. And, you know, I can be an asshole at times. I'm not going to deny that. But you're always going to get honesty out of me. But again, calling me an asshole is not going to endear you to me and make me see your point. It's like like this. If you had a problem with someone, say, at customer service or on the street, what's the more effective method? Say if someone stepped on your foot or cut you in line, is it more effective to say, excuse me, sir, uh, I have some a recommendation, or maybe you don't realize you did this, but you cut me in line, and that could be perceived as rude. Maybe you should uh, step back or 
not cut someone in line next time. And a rational person will respond, oh, I'm either I don't realize I did that, or maybe I was in a bad mood, or I wasn't thinking, my apologies, I didn't mean to be a dick like that, take my place in line. There's a myriad of positive results that can happen from that. The other option is saying, hey, asshole, why the fuck did you do that? Why did you step in line in front of me? Or, wait, well, look at this asshole who doesn't, who thinks who the hell he is, arrogant piece of shit. Do you think that person's going to respond positively to that, even if they deserve it? You think that you think they're going to learn from that or want to learn from someone that is talking to them like that? First of all, you almost never would say that to the per- person in reality, which is why I have a problem with rude comments online to begin with, because the amount of times someone's been rude to me in person, it's like two or three times, and usually they were drunk or something was wrong with the person to begin with, versus online where they're rude to me every, every day, which I don't fucking care. You have to have a thick shell to be online. You have to have a thick, porky hide. So that's the outlandish claim that I'm an asshole to everyone. I would maintain I'm an asshole to people that deserve it. <laughs> I'm rude to people that deserve it. To those uh, other people that meet me in person, I think I'm, I'm, I try to be kind, understanding. I try to give attention. Of course, you're going to see people leave comments online. Well, Pat was an asshole towards me, or he, he seemed uh, standoffish. Keep in mind, I'm meeting uh, 100 people a day at a convention, if not 200 people. Uh, there's been conventions where me and Ian were it's been nonstop for eight hours, and either I'm going to get exhausted, or my mind's going to wander, or I'm going to need a break. I can't have the same energy level or attention level for every person that comes up to me. That's just physically impossible, and there's no YouTuber where that's going to be possible for. A lot of YouTubers aren't even at their table or booth for more than a couple hours a day or a few hours, or they'll have an autograph session. Some are very good. Guys like James Rolfe will be there for every last fucking person that comes up. They're going to be there. But some YouTubers won't even let make themselves available. So that's the risk you run. If you're going to make yourself available for that long period of time, which I tend to do because I feel it's a proper way to conduct yourself when you go to a convention, people pay money either to come out and say hi to you or to see you. You should make yourself available as, as, as much as you can. Yes, you need time off. Yes, it's tough. But as much as you can, you should do that. Um, but you will falter just because you don't either you don't eat, you're you're tired, uh, your voice is going. I'm not playing tomorrow, but this is just the, this is just how it is. You're dehydrated, your mind wanders, you're just exhausted. That's the way it is, especially on uh, later in the day on a Saturday or even early on a Sunday. You're just oh my god, you know. Ian had a Ian said this on the podcast. So I'm not going to say Ian had to go at too many games 2015. Ian had to go away and have a cry in the bathroom to recover and come back to get through the moment and the stress. He said that in the pocket so I can repeat it. Um, so it's tough to deal with sometimes. So if I offended you in person, uh, I, either I didn't mean to because you were person number 108 and I needed a break at that second or the person before you pissed me off and maybe I didn't go over it yet. And there are assholes that come up to me, but a lot of times I don't realize it, so I give them a pass. Uh, I will say this. I try to do my best. I honestly try to do my best uh, when I go out to conventions. And I think if I was an asshole to fans in, in person, I don't think these conventions would ask me back year after year after year after year if I did a bad job interacting with attendees or did a bad job at panels. I just don't think that's the case. What would it take for you to make a sequel to a certain NES guidebook? Say an SNES guidebook. I am heavenly... Heavenly? <laughs> I am, I'm so tired. I am heavily considering that for two reasons. 
the the overwhelming demand for the first book, which which thank you guys so much. I I knew the book would do okay. I didn't realize I'd sell out the first print within the first year. Second printing is going to be shipping in early 2017. I had no idea I'd sell out, but also I had no idea that people were clamoring for a well produced, well researched, sturdy uh, video game guidebook. There's a lot of stuff out there that either uh, the materials, I wouldn't say, are 100% having held some of them and gone through them. And definitely the writing on some is not up to up to snuff. So I know I'm a, I'm a decent writer, at the, at, the, at the very least. And I know I have the talent to see the good in other writers. Uh, I've hired good writers to help fill it out. Ian's a pretty good writer. Uh, Ashen did an awesome job also editing. Karen, uh, Jim Evans on the book did a great job doing their reviews and others that filled in the gaps in here. Brett Weiss did great jobs. And so it's not just when you're doing these books, it's not just your own writing. It's being able to identify good writing and others and direct them and how to write. And I think I've, now that I've gone through the process the first time, the superintendent book will not be as hard as, as the NES book. The only difficulty will be is that the fact that there's still like seven to eight to 800 games. If you include the European exclusives that you would have to do. So the book will be just as big, but I've gone through it. Now, I will say this, though. I am not a Super Nintendo expert. I know some stuff. Other stuff, I don't. So if I do a Super Nintendo book, I won't be able to write as much. There's no way I humanly can write 470 reviews again to begin with. That was nuts. I'd probably be looking at a couple hundred at most and then farming out the others to the, to this team of writers that helped with the first one and then other writers. Uh, I'd also probably need to be to be, have another person come in and help edit the actual content and make sure some of the stuff was more accurate. But... I think Super Nintendo is a natural extension of this book, and I think I can do it, and I think I will put myself through the horror again of doing the book, but I think I'll be smarter about it and won't kill myself as much and give myself, not to give myself more time, it'll actually be less time because the work will be better thought out on the forefront, better spaced out with more a better team from the start, because, because at the start it was just me and Ian. I think I'll have a better support group and I think I will get in over, in over my head and have to play catch-up. So I did have, to, did have to play catch-up a little bit on the NES book, which, that's not why it shipped about six months after I thought it would. Um, I wanted to, I went back and I I added some things. I tried to make it as accurate as possible. Did I fail on some aspects? You know, uh, some errors got through still. But I tried my best. Second print, second print's a lot cleaner than the first. Uh, I will say that. Not that the first is garbage. You go on Amazon and it's, you know, good reviews. So I can't complain too much. And they can't either. But hopefully. But, uh, yes. Give me, let me get through the holiday season. Because this is one of the hardest years of my life. With finishing the book. Doing a dozen conventions. Um, ten of which occurred between July and November. So you're talking July, August, September, October. So basically, holy shit. I basically did one almost every other week from July until November. I didn't go three weeks in a row without a convention. Three weekends in a row without a convention starting in July. Or actually late June with too many games. Wow. Okay, yeah. Wow, holy shit. So I I can get lucky. Sometimes I got lucky and had um, one weekend off, second weekend and then convention, but never was a, was three weekends in a row where I had nothing going on for the most part. And a lot of times it was 
uh, one week off, one week back on, or a couple weeks off, then two in a row. So, and again, not trying to play the martyr, but that takes a lot out of you and keeping up with doing the podcast and making sure you guys have some sort of entertainment and get you through your, your day, whether it's good, crappy, bad, otherwise. Takes a lot out of me. And then trying to keep up with some sort of NES Punk videos. I know I only did three this year. I'll have a fourth one that comes out. And getting the book out. And hopefully getting that app out. That sweet app that you should look out for. Takes a lot, lot, of, lot, lot out of you. So let me get through this this part of the year. Hit me back a few months into 2017. And I'll have a better idea of what I want to do with the Super Nintendo book. But I think I want to do it. I think, I think uh, you guys have a desire for it. I think there's demand for it. And uh, why not? Why not do that? Eh. Eh, who needs who needs fun on the weekends? Who needs to sleep? Oh, so that was my third endless podcast in a row. Well, he showed up for a quick, quick uh, call. That was my podcast. Follow us um, on Twitter at Pathaniaspunk at Pixelsickle. Uh, you can also follow or you can subscribe on Patreon and watch the entire video podcast at Pixelsickle, um, and that gets you the full video podcast. In, in all its awkward segues in its entirety. You can listen on Stitcher. You can listen on Podbean, iTunes. You can help support us by subscribing and also leaving a comment and also rating the podcast that helps us in the in the ratings and everything else. You know, always like seeing the reviews, uh, especially the one star Pat doesn't know what he's talking about. Uh, he's now the one I like. Pat, Pat's a braggart and e- egoistic. <laughs> good, good stuff. Um, you can pre-order the book at ultimatenes.com. Comes out early 2017. The second one, we unfortunately went through a ton during the holiday, the, during the holidays of Thanksgiving weekend. Um, and other than that, look out for the Ultimate NES Collecting and Gameplay app on iOS and Android. Hopefully, it's out by the time you hear this. And hopefully, Ian will come back uh, for the pre-Christmas podcast. We'll unwrap your presents. That'll be a good time. There's also the SoCal Retro Gaming Expo, February 4th and 5th. How could I forget that? The SoCal Retro Gaming Expo is happening the 4th and 5th of uh, February. Um, use promo code CUPODCAST to save on your ticket. And um, go to SoCalRetroGamingExpo.com for more information. I'm going to be there. Uh, Ian will hopefully be there. Frank, Norm the Gaming Historian. Andre Meadows of Black New Comedy, Billy and Jay the Game Chasers, Pro Jared, Gerard the Completionist, his partner Alex will be there as well, Games 31, Phil Moore from Nick Arcade, others to be announced, the, the Super Nintendo PlayStation prototype will be there, oh yes, in Ontario, California, again February 4th and 5th, SoCalRetroGamingExpo.com, pre-order your tickets on Eventbrite, B-R-I-T-E, and use promo code Podcast to save there. So for Ian Ferguson who's not here. Hopefully you'll be feeling, feeling better. I'm Pat Contry. I gotta eat a taco or a burrito or a chimichanga or nachos. I'm just, I'm just gonna rattle up every Mexican food I can think of right now. Uh, churro. That's more of a dessert. Quesadilla. Quesadilla.